aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. god guys we are back again in like a timely manner which has been like the third or fourth month in a row i'm forgetting because there's been so many months in a row that we've been consistently putting out episodes one of the reasons for that though and i think i forgot to properly do this in um when i posted the episode and also maybe when we recorded it is dan edited our last episode which uh featured justin kurzweil from the stereo continues um and as our guest talking about Oh my God, Midnight Offerings and the Sins of Dorian Gray. And we recorded it like so close to Halloween and there was no way we could have gotten it out on time if Dan hadn't of uh, been kind enough to edit it. I'm sure that there are 99,000 other things he would have rather have done, but he got the episode to me um, and it was beautiful and people seemed to really enjoy it. And so I just want to publicly say here, if I didn't say it in the last episode, thanks so much, Dan, because it, there's oh, no way. Of course. It could have gotten done without you. So um, as well as your hosting duties, but like just in terms of getting it physically online was great. And um, it was so nice to have an actual Halloween episode, which I think we've yes. been able to do every year. But this has been an unusual year. So yeah. um, not everything has been the way I would like it. But uh, and also one of the things I don't like is that Nate could not make it today. Oh. Because he's working and um, I'm really upset because I just listened to the Hysteria Continues drunk cast for Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Oh, yes. That was great. And he, he, what did he say? He said. He said a lot. He said, wink the fap, which is <laughs> something I never heard before. And now it's stuck in my head and I have not laughed that hard in forever. <laughs> I took a I took a walk this morning through my neighborhood, a five mile walk, a five mile walk. And I'm still listening to them because. Nate just took over and it was wonderful. And anyway, so he's not here, but we do have a guest, which I'm going to introduce here in a second, but let's get um, the little niceties out of the way. So, hey, Dan, what's up? I, I think uh, the one of my favorite parts about Nate in our last episode was, um, and I forget if it's in the episode or he said it around the episode, but sort of when he would get very um, like worried and um, about like talking with Justin because he was like, well, Justin, you're, you're British and you know, you all sound so intelligent. And he was just getting so worried constantly. Like, what do you think of me? You know, this Southern guy, <laughs> it's, it was very funny to hear. And, um, but, and their drunk cast episode is excellent. So we, as always, we miss Nate when he's not here, but I'm here and I'm, I, I hope, I, I hope you guys like me because I'm going to be talking a bunch here in a bit. I, I did I did notice something. I've got Meryl open right here. Normally, I have Amanda's book open, standing by. Um, the thing is, my dog chewed up the book, the copy of the book about a week ago. My book? So it's, yes. 
He oh, loved it. No. It was delicious. It was delicious. And you know, because I, <laughs> I, I was I was sent a copy because I wrote some reviews in it, but then I bought a copy and I gave one copy away, and my dog ate the other copy. So it's time to buy a new one. But that's so why I have Merrill here instead. And I was just looking. I'm sure you'll mention it. You'll mention it later. But I have the first edition of Merrill when the the movies are in broadcast order, and yeah. like the the movies that aired around Black Noon in November of 1971, it's crazy. I won't say them all right here, but like they're like three or four like big classics, like within like a couple weeks. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah, you need to tell me because I didn't write that down. I only wrote oh. down the movie that it played against, which we'll talk about. So when we get to that part at the yeah. end, we'll yeah. do that um, when wow. I do the little trivia. You know what? I can't believe you mentioned my book. I wrote a review of Black and In there and I meant to reread it because I was kind of hard on the film. I remember not really liking it. And I have different thoughts on it now. And I was going to reread yeah. my review to see what, but I have a general idea what it was. But um, I've totally forgot to even look at it. I not have gotten eaten. I can look through the pile and see. It's it. okay. It's okay. I mean, I have a it's general idea. I can do voice. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Amanda. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you can read in my voice. Um, but uh, so, okay. Well, Meryl is the best backup you could possibly have. So I'm glad yeah. he's there for you. Actually, I found an error in his book, which we'll talk about when we get into the oh. Yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, but we are here with um, a guest that I've been so excited to have on the show. And it's taken a while to get him here for some reason. And I don't know why. But uh, we are uh, here with James Newton, who has a podcast called Newton Talks that I really enjoy. And um, hey, James, how's it going? It's going fantastic, Amanda. And uh, hello to you. Hello to Daniel. I'm really, really pleased to be on this show. I've wanted to come on for a long time and uh, very happy to be here. So just thank you before we start, before I mess it up, before I say something stupid. I want to say thanks. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I know I was on your show Earlier in the year, this year is like such a blur to me. I can't remember when it was, but I feel like it, it was in the spring. Um, and we yeah. talked about TV movies on there. And one of the things about your interview that I really liked was that you kind of picked three movies that were so radically diverse from each other that we somehow managed to cover the gambit of how amazing TV movies are in sort of terms of subject matter. And because um, usually people pick, like myself, I do this, we pick movies that are kind of similar to talk about if we do doubles or triples or whatever. And um, I think I might have mentioned this on the last episode of the one before, but the three movies we did were were fantasies, because I love that movie, um, The Rape of Richard Beck, and Police Woman Centerfold. And those are so different from each other. And although I guess they all came out in the 80s, which is interesting. But anyway, um, and I, I really love that. I love and I hope the people who listen got some idea if they don't listen, watch TV movies that how good they are. So I really thank you for having yeah. me on and for bringing kind of a new perspective to them as well. But you're pretty new to the TV movies, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And one of the reasons why I, I chose those three separate films was to try and I'm not that I'm, I'm sure, you know, it, you can't en encompass all the genres and different types of films that, that TV movies that there are. But the reason, you know, primarily, I'm guessing my, most of my audience is, is from the UK. And we, we're familiar with TV movies, but it's usually used as a kind of pejorative term mm -hmm. over here. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly growing up, uh, when, you know, like 20 something years ago when I was, when I was a lot younger. So uh, I wanted to look at a, a range of different styles and different genres just to kind of be an introduction to, to the TV movie, to my listeners um, with that podcast. And that's why I chose those disparate films, you know, those films that were completely, you know, different in terms of the, what, what they were aiming to do. Uh, but it got some really excellent feedback, actually. And a lot of, and interestingly, some people said that they'd come and they'd seen uh, Rape of Richard Beck in the video shops 
uh, on VHS when they were young. And uh, so that, that was really good. It triggered a few memories. So, so it, it got some great feedback. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, that was wonderful. And so aside from having a podcast, I was actually going to talk about the podcast last because we're all podcasters here. But but you do a little bit of everything. You're probably one of the most creative people I can think of off the top of my head that I know in real life. And so you you work in you make films. You're a writer. You're a podcaster, obviously. And also you're a musician. I remember you telling me. And I think you even said you wrote the music for the opening of your show. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there'll be people out there if they listen to this and they know me, they'll they'll laugh when they they they, they hear you describe me as a musician. Let's put it that uh, I've I've got a bass guitar, and I can hit the strings. All right, so that that that's about the extent that it that it goes to. So what I do is I, I wrote the music at the start of my show, and uh, and and at the uh, and for both the different strands, I've got like a a micro cast where I talk about cult, uh, cult movies, and then the main Newton talks interviews, and I. Uh, I write the track as best I can. Then I pass it to much better musicians to record it for me. So that, that that's the process there. Oh, it's quite good. I really like it. But since we're talking about, your, let's go do your podcasting first since we're on the subject. So one yeah. of the things I did want to hit on, so you've got these regular longer episodes and then you've got these mini-sodes. And so they're almost two separate things to me in terms of um, your show. And uh, I guess because they're solo and they are very short. Like they're the shortest podcast I can think of off the top of my head. But they're also like ridiculously informative um which is the one you did now i didn't write down the title uh, which is the one oh my god it's not three the hard way what's it called jimmy cliff oh uh, oh sorry um yeah uh, the, the harder they, they come. come the harder they come yeah that is probably one of the most informative five or six minutes or however long it is of podcasting i've ever encountered in my entire life and and I still haven't Absolutely. seen the movie, but yeah, it was amazing. And so the amount of information you cram into your minisodes are ridiculous and people should just marathon them like I do um, because it'll take you like an hour to get through all of them and, and you'll learn about a bunch of neat little movies um, that you might not have been familiar with before. Like um, you did the James Van Beber one, um, Debut at Dawn. And um, you did some Vincent Price stuff. That one's a little longer because you talked about a couple of different films. And so they're very informative. Eight films in eight, in eight minutes, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, so, so tell me, how long have you been podcasting? It's fairly new to you, I think. And why, are, why did you start doing it? I, I think it's about a year and a half. I think it's about May, not, not last May, the, the May before that. Uh, and, and I started really because it, it, it felt like it would be fun. It felt like I knew a lot of people who were writers, uh, artists, filmmakers, people who were researching interesting things. And I thought it might be something, you know, kind of another element of, uh, you know, another creative wing, really. Another, 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 um, not string to my bows, you know, that's that's too fancy a, a phrase, but it would be another creative arm, you know, of, of, of something that I could get involved with. So I'm really just learning the form. And I really enjoy doing the longer uh, podcasts where we dig deep into a topic like the, what we did with, with yours. Uh, and sometimes I, I, I do ones on individual films or a particular topic and, and, and I investigate that. But I really like the little microcasts, the, 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 the mini-sodes on the, on, the cult, on the cult movies because they're really kind of energizing. You know, I watch a film, probably I've seen the film, might have seen it film 20 times but watching it again revisiting it again often on blu-ray so I, I get the best copy that i can and just um allowing myself to talk about movies and to talk about things that i'm interested in but without having to do the hard work of writing it down 
right? Yeah. I think podcast is a really kind of um, what's what's the phrase? You know, it'd be, it'd be, it's a kind of live medium. It's it's something. It's immediate, right? It's a very very immediate. You can hit the hit the hub of of a matter very very quickly. I often felt this. Maybe this is going off on a bit of a tangent, but when I was in bands. Uh, I used to find that really energizing. You know, we could write a song in the morning and be performing it in the evening. Now, when you make a movie, you can't really do that. When you're writing a book, you can't really do that. It's a much slower, longer process. So what I like about the podcasting is that when I um, can get myself in gear to really tackle a topic or to dive into an interview or to watch a movie and, and, and try and pick apart what, what fascinates me about it, is that I find it really, um, it's, it's an energizing process. Right. I can record it in the afternoon and by the, by the by the evening it's out there and people are listening to it and I'm getting feedback on it and it's just it, you know it's it, it feels um it feels creative and it, and it gives me a buzz that's great yeah I think it's really fun it took us a, a little while to I guess find our legs the first episode we did was like tragic I mean the second recording of it was much better but we spent all summer prepping and then we did an episode and like we couldn't get anything to record and nothing worked and I think yeah. I cried for like a week and then we came back and did it and... yes yes <laughs> <laughs> but it's been really fun so what inspired so you say the micro quest you can just do really fast because you've seen a film but, but what kind of inspired the idea of that because I'm not sure I know that many 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 episodes had you been listening to things like that or did it just come to you it just came to me really i think it was like i was getting a bit frustrated with how long it was taking me to do the main episodes and i was teaching i work at a university i teach in a university in england and i was doing a module on new york and the movies and uh one of the episodes one of the one of the weeks was on the film the warriors and i just got it into my head i thought well the students might appreciate my thoughts on the warriors that are outside from an academic setting. So I asked them, I thought, how would you feel if I just did, did a little introduction to the warriors and put it onto what we Moodle, our virtual learning environment, so it wasn't publicly available. So I did that, uh, and it was just for the students. And after that, I thought, well, this, why don't I do this as part of my uh, kind of podcast uh, arm as well? And and the, the kind of the model really. Um, for any in film introductions in the UK, the model for people of my age who are into the kind of movies that I am are, are, are a filmmaker called Alex Cox, who you might be aware of. He, mm. he obviously did Poe Man and Sid and Nancy. Oh, sure, yeah. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. And in England, in the uh, late 80s and into the very early 90s, he did a series on uh, BBC Two uh, called Movie Drone. And he would introduce a different cult movie every week, sometimes double bills. And he would do a little five minute sometimes three minutes, sometimes six or seven minute introduction uh, to each film. And for people my age um, who are kind of, you know, into the same kind of films, it was like your film education, right? So I, I was still at school at the time and you'd stay up on Sunday night to watch this film that you'd never heard of, given this really kind of funky, cool introduction by, by Alex Cox. Uh, and I didn't know of him, him as a filmmaker at the time. Um, but I, that, I used that as a kind of model, really for the way I do my, uh, my, 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 my microcasts. I don't try to give too much plot information away. I just want to tease out what I think people should be watching out for, whether it's shot selection, editing choices, or, or the music or something like that. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Movie Drone, but it, I think it was really influential over here on a whole generation mm. of makers and academics. It was a superb series. It was like a diff every Sunday night that they would show a different cult film. And what did I see there? I think the very first one they showed was Wicker Man um, mm. back in the when it, when it was, you know, not everyone knew, you know, or remembered the Wicker Man um, performance. 
um, starring Mick Jagger, all these terrific trancers, Vamp with Grace Jones, um, Cry wow. Baby, John Waters films, spaghetti westerns, loads of spaghetti westerns that you hadn't been seen before, so Face to Face, Bullet for the General, The Great Silence, um, just a really wonderful range of, of, of movies. And, um, and I can honestly say, right, and I, don't, and, and I didn't expect to be saying this, but um, if it wasn't for Movie Drone, I wouldn't be interested in the things that I'm, I am now. I wouldn't be doing the job I am now, and I wouldn't be sitting here now talking to you about movies, right? So that, that's how influential and what the impact that it had. So um, I, I urge people to – if you go on YouTube, you can probably find all of all of his little introductions. They're, they're, they're really fun. Oh, I'm going to. And you actually answered my next question, which was going to be how you got into – genre films because you're deep into all different kinds of genre like when we met i know we talked about horror because that's how i kind of saw sin cine excess but the conference we met yeah. at but like there's there's a wide breadth of topics that people discuss there and and you're into a lot of it including westerns which is why you're here but um oh my god i didn't even announce what movies we we're talking about but i will in a little bit so um <laughs> so was that the show that introduced you to all the genres or did you find as a kid um even younger than that that you had an interest in some of these other kinds of weird films well it's like a, you, you, your memory kind of crosses over so i'm not sure exactly where where, where it come into i mean i went you know <laughs> i don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or whether it says something uh says everything you need to know about me but my favorite films now are probably probably not the same films that i liked when i was 13 right <laughs> so uh, i don't think my tastes have changed all that much you know i remember when i was um 12 years old i went on a football tour of uh, holland uh, the, the netherlands and uh, on the way back, on the ferry, on the way back, uh, there, there, there were two movies showing on the ferry between the Netherlands and, and the UK, which is about an eight hour ferry ride. Uh, and they were uh, Full Metal Jacket and Robocop. So as you can see, it didn't have really, it wasn't, they weren't aiming at families, right? It was, it was just like, <laughs> no. <laughs> All poor movies. And because it was a Dutch ferry, they let kids in. So I remember seeing Robocop when I was, uh, when I was, when I was 12. And that uh, blew, me, blew me away as well. And again, that that combined with watching Clint Eastwood films on television, James Bond movies, then you're getting into horror. And then as you become a kind of precocious teen, you you, you want more sex and violence. So you start to seek that kind of, that kind of thing out. And before you know it, you're, 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 uh, you're diseased, you know, with, uh, with a, <laughs> of a cult film. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as an Amanda confesses, which I do periodically, you know, I've never seen RoboCop because when I was in my 20s, RoboCop had already been out for a while. And I had this friend, kind of friend. He was a friend of a friend. And he had a Laserdisc player, which were making resurgence in the 90s. And I was at his house and he always wanted to show us the worst, most horrifying scenes of any horror movie that he had on Laserdisc because it looked so beautiful on his big TV and everything. And so he showed that scene at the beginning of RoboCop where they're in the board meeting and that guy gets killed by RoboCop ah. like he, with the machine gun. And yeah. I was so horrified. And that's all he showed me. There's no context to the film at all. I've never seen anything before that scene or after it. I was so upset that I just couldn't bear to like my whole day was ruined. And like it carried with me. For decades, I still have don't have the guts to see RoboCop because that scene damaged me so bad. As like a 25-year-old, that scene like traumatized me beyond repair. And so so whenever anybody mentions RoboCop, I actually have like a knee-jerk reaction to it because it's just so horrifying. But um, but then he would show stuff like the thing, like the thing where the guy gets his hands like kind of bitten off in the mm -hmm. belly of the whatever and that was fine but like for some reason robocop really like 
did a number on me. So I have yet to see it. So seeing it as a kid, I can't even imagine what that did to your brain, James, but it, it might explain some things about you. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is a I good thing. Um, the thought there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you also write and make films. So like, um, yeah. I don't know if you, you can talk too much about, I know you mentioned you, uh, at the conference that you do have a book coming out. I don't know if you can talk about what that is, or do you want to talk about the process of writing or anything about your writing? Yeah, we can do. Yeah, sure. I don't mind. Uh, as long as people are, are interested. Um, okay. I'm writing a, a book now about um, uh, the Mad Max and um, the, the kind of films that it, that it influenced. So, so the kind of post-apocalypse road movies from from the nineteen eighties. Nice. Uh, I've just, you know, that should be coming out um, early or middle of next year, um, more towards the middle, I would think, uh, by Bloomsbury. Uh, it's called the Mad Max Effect. But I love the, the Mad Max series, um, and I, I love the films that it was influenced by, and I love the films that that it subsequently influenced. So it's been really good, kind of diving into those and finding connections and seeing kind of aesthetic connections between these films and trying to trace uh, where, where the origin of some of these uh, influences are. So it's not really a, a book about the, uh, the, the, um, the, the Mad Max, the development of the Mad Max series and how it was made. It's more about locating Mad Max back within exploitation film. So I talk a little bit about biker movies and revenge movies and how they influence Mad Max or the way that Mad Max could be sold on the back of its kind of biker um, iconography that it uses and the revenge tropes that it uses. And then where, the way that that went into, you know, what what has been termed as a Mad Max exploitation, kind of like all these kind of Italian and and um, um, Filipino um, rip-offs, really. They, they get described as rip-offs of the road warrior. Yeah, and how, and how Mad Max is kind of at the centre of the, this kind of web of exploitation film culture, if that makes sense. If that doesn't make sense, please cut all of this out because I'll, I'll look like an idiot. No, it but makes total sense. It makes, no, uh, it makes sense. Hopefully, yeah. I've read all of it, it all makes sense. You know, by, the time, by the time I've read the whole book, hopefully it, it makes sense. But it's been it's been fun. And looking at these and, and it's mostly again again about those aesthetic connections and 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 thinking about you know how, what, what what i found most interesting when re researching the book was how people very much dis disavowed those rip-offs of, of mad max that came out in the 1980s uh yet when fury road comes out nearly all of the tropes repeat all of the uh, many what well, at least many of the same tropes and uh, and um narrative shifts that are common to nearly all of the uh 1980s road warrior mad max imitators so i thought that was quite that was quite interesting mm. it's almost things have come around full circle and you've got this kind of mad max fury road even though it's like a, i don't know how much it cost 200 million dollars or something to make but it really is really steeped in 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 all that um iconography and uh, and imagery from the 1980s yeah, that's amazing. So I'm not, again, I'm not that familiar with the Mad Max. I've only seen Fury Road. I don't know why I haven't seen the Mad Max movies. Beyond Thunderdome looks like the greatest thing ever made. But like, for some reason, it just so but and my mom's from Australia, right? And so like, she watched all this stuff. But for some reason, um, I just didn't get exposed to it. I don't know why, but that's something I'm going to do because I'm curious about all of them. And I'm sorry, I haven't seen them. Are, do you are you working on another book or do you want to write another book? No, I, I don't want to write another book. <laughs> I'm still having to finish this one. It's like, you know, it's, it's out, it's out to the publishers at the moment. So I'm going to have to do like, you know, like uh, typo corrections, which there are probably mm -hmm. thousands of, 
typesetting and all that business. And uh, no, I don't even want to read another book again, if I'm honest. <laughs> so so uh, ask me in a couple of years' time, we'll see. Okay. I might, my, answer, my answer might be different. My answer might be different. <laughs> and um, and so you're also a filmmaker. You're a really good filmmaker. You're like an amazing filmmaker. And so let's, I know you have something that's been playing festivals, but let's talk about like, um, when did you start making films and what inspired that? I was the first time I made any. I mean, it's it's actually embarrassing. I'm, I've been making films for so long, and I've done so many uh, that I should be uh, I should be uh, rivaling Spielberg now for money and status. But I'm I'm very much not. Uh, I started when I was very very young, about thirteen, and I, there was some kind of like scheme for, for for kids getting into filmmaking back in Wolverhampton, and um, I. Uh, went there and it was like every Saturday morning you'd learn a little bit about making videos and making animation and the first thing I ever did actually was a Mad Max ripoff as it happens uh it was a little little animated 60 second car chase with um cars made out of uh, toilet rolls and and, and uh <laughs> pipe cleaner and stuff like that so uh, <laughs> it had a good ending it had a motorcyclist like smashing into the camera and, and turning all bloody so that, that 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 was quite fun so I did that and uh but I'm and and, and it really, again, it's just a, it's an, another way of being creative more than anything else. And films are the things that I gravitate most towards when it comes to art and creativity. Um, and most of the films that I've made, I'm really massively dissatisfied with. And and, and I, I never really kind of sought funding. So I've often made this stuff completely independently with one in particular collaborator, a, a guy called Paul Richards, who's a, an actor friend of mine. And uh, we, we, you know, we make stuff that sometimes is we're really proud of sometimes not uh, but it's all comes from the heart and it's all uh, attempting to uh, explore things that I can't put into words if that makes sense and so yeah. some of the films that I make uh, are it's it more comes from an emotional space and again if people want to go onto the my Vimeo channel and stuff like that and if you can get through my website and th then then go, go and check some of these things out and see what you think the last one i made I've, uh, is is called that's in festivals at the moment it's called black lizard tales and i made i shot that last summer and it was put on a bit of a hiatus because of lockdown but that's that's finished now and now it's playing festivals and some people are, are saying some very nice things about it so that, that that that's quite good and i really made that to get back into the swing of making films it's the longest film that I've made. It's like 65 minutes. So hopefully I'm back into the swing of things, a bit more energised and a bit more kind of up for making more. So I've got several others planned. I shot a, a very short throwaway piece in the, in the summer, which I'm going to, uh, which is almost finished now, which should be online in the, in the next few days. Uh, it's very, very minor. Just just shot with one other person shot on a, on a mobile phone. And then I'll be uh, making another short in January. And then hopefully in Easter or summertime, it's it's a new feature film. Oh, oh, exciting. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, yeah, I'll post a link to your site on our website. And I'll, and I'll put the little link URL into the notes so people can come visit um, your uh, page and your website. And I'll go ahead and recommend Grace right now. Um, as a movie that they can access that's about 37 38 it's less than 40 minutes but it's it's 
longer yep. than most short films. It's so good. Um, and uh, that would be the one I'll recommend to people. If there's something you want else you want me to post, you can let me know and I'll, I'll add links to that as well. Um, amazing. So I'm so happy you're here because because you have a really interesting mind for film, um, which everybody can hear when they check out your podcast. And so and you're also like a pretty ardent fan of Westerns. And I know Dan knows a lot, at least about TV Westerns and I think theatricals as well. Dan knows a little bit about everything. So that's kind mm -hmm. of a given. But it's like um, and that helps. <laughs> it helps. But but so I know nothing about Westerns. Again, my mom and dad were really into Westerns. Um, and I think it actually turned me off of them because I can remember being a little kid and watching like spaghetti westerns with my parents and all I could think of was that like how gross everybody looked you know what I mean they all were so dirty and for some reason that stuck in my head and it just I avoided westerns like almost completely through my entire life but recently um, I did the commentary uh, last year for a tv movie called um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark which starred Kim Darby who of course stars in True Grit with John Wayne and so that was one of the movies I watched and um, when I was doing my uh, background research and it's so good, you know? I mean, obviously, that's clearly one of the best films ever made, but it's like, um, it kind of started opening my brain back up to like, maybe I need to start thinking about this genre in uh, more serious terms about watching things in it. And I've seen Duck, You Sucker. That's the only other one I can remember seeing because um, David Warbeck's in it in a non-dialogue part where he just drives a car and he looks hot. And so, of course, I had to sit through two hours of that just to see him for 30 seconds. It was worth it. So um, <laughs> anyway... Anyway, so I don't know much, but I know you guys do. So so when I pick these things, I always try to curate the films to fit your interests. Whether or not you like them is up to you. And let me tell everybody what we're talking about again. We're talking about a classic from 1971 called Black Noon um, and also a 1991 uh, USA original called Into the Badlands um, that are both ended up being uh, really surreal kind of horror westerns. And we can talk about whether or not Into the Badlands is horror or not, but this is these are the quirkiest strangest films i think i've ever put together for this podcast so i'm really excited to have your input about certain aspects of the film that i don't fully understand myself um and also just your general thoughts so i think we should just go ahead then and get started so dan are you ready to talk about black noon i am i am let me give uh you folks a little little breakdown here uh this one begins and I'll try to yell out the actors' names as I give the characters' names, having Meryl sitting right beside me. Not Meryl himself. Maybe the ghost of Meryl is with me at all times. But um, having his book here, I've got everyone's names and the actors' names, so I'll try to not screw those up too much. But this begins, we're in the desert, and Reverend John Keyes, Roy Thinnis, and Lorna Keyes, his wife, Lynn Loring, are lost. They're in the middle of the desert. They're pretty much dead. They're um, no water, exhausted. They're gone. The, the crows, the buzzards are beginning to circle and everything. When all of a sudden a, uh, a wagon pulls up and in the wagon uh, we get a gentleman named Caleb Hobbs, Ray Milland. We get uh, a Joseph, played by the great Hank Warden. And forgive me, forgive me, deliverance is in the, uh, in the wagon, right? I forgot to write down. I want to make sure that. Yvette Mimieux is in the wagon, too, I believe. Um, yes, she is, in fact. And so the three of them show up, and they're going to their nearby town, and they just happen to pass by, and they, they grab the reverend, and they grab his wife, and, and, and uh, she's in a really bad way. He's a little loopy, but she is like, whew, almost gone. And they put her in the wagon and take them back to their town, which is called San Melas, Melas, um, where they, uh, they, they put the wife in a bed and they have a nurse played by uh, Gloria Graham watching over her. 
and they kind of begin to chat with the reverend. The reverend and his wife were going to another town where he was going to take over the reverend job. The uh, the old reverend was retiring from reverending, and they were going to have a new reverend in to take over the reverending of that that area. <laughs> The, the folks in the town really, really take to Reverend, uh, Reverend, uh, Reverend John. Uh, now, his wife spends most of the time in, in bed, sick, getting a little better, getting a little sick again. But you learn that the town, all these folks are from, they say they're from Connecticut. So they're a little, little odd to, to John and his wife. Um, and, uh, yeah, Caleb is in charge. And Joseph, Hank Warden, is kind of a Bible-spouting uh, guy. If you know Hank Warden from other movies, you know exactly – you can see him exactly in your mind. And Deliverance, uh, played by Yvette Mimieux, is uh, Caleb's daughter, who is mute, with the story being that she used to have bad dreams that she would never tell anyone about. One day she woke up screaming, and that was the last noise she made. Caleb, this is a fiction of Deliverances. How did she get it? Well, as a child, she had a lot of bad dreams. Nightmares, I suppose you'd call them. We'd ask her what they were about, she'd, she'd never tell us. And one night she woke up screaming. That was the last sound she uttered. I see. You think you can help her, John? I don't know. I hope so. I'd be... Well, she's everything I have. I understand. She's lovely, and she kind of floats in and around the movie, and she seems to have a bit of an eye for the Reverend, and the Reverend is like, hey, it's Yvette Mimieux. Mm, yeah. But, you know, he's also paying attention to his wife, who is, um, who is uh, obviously sick in bed. And uh, Deliverance makes candles, and everyone else at one time or another has worked in a local mine they have um, for gold, gold mine, but it's kind of played out. But even though it's played out, they get a gentleman, a gentleman named Moon, played by the great Henry Silva, rides into town on a horse, all dressed in black, basically asking for his share. And he just seems like a nasty guy who comes in and kind of extorts the people. And uh, the first time we see him, he kind of, uh, he does that thing where he ropes uh, Hank Warden's like legs, Joseph's legs, and begins to drag him along the ground. But the Reverend kind of grabs the rope in between the horse and, and Joseph and is trying to slow him down. And it's uh, and they really kind of take to the Reverend because he tried to save Joseph, you know, an older, older gentleman. And they have the Reverend do a... Um, an outdoor sermon and while he's doing the sermon there's a young boy I think whose name I want to say is Ethan I could be making that up who is on crutches because of a stagecoach accident and suddenly possibly because of the reverend's words Ethan begins to he gets up and begins to walk live up your eyes under the hill arise and renew your strength And you shall mount up with wings as eagles. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. Behold. Rejoice. You shall walk and not be weary.
the darkness shall be lifted and your crooked shall be straight. And everyone really is beginning to enjoy the Reverend. And they're kind of insinuating, you should stay here, don't move on. But the Reverend's like, we already made plans to move on. And the wife is, um, the wife who kind of notices that Deliverance is kind of looking at her husband, you know, in maybe a way that she shouldn't. The wife is like, we gotta, we gotta go. She senses something is wrong. And gradually we begin to see, and I won't go too far into it, but we begin to see things like Deliverance in the shed where she makes candles has a little like, I want to say like a wax doll. Um, that looks looks a little like the reverend's wife. And she begins to manipulate the little doll and that kind of, you know, Lorna, the wife, gets a little bit more sick when she does that. And eventually there's a bit where the nurse cuts off some of Lorna's hair and they put the hair on the doll. So it's like a voodoo doll type thing that Deliverance is using to keep Lorna sick, to keep them there. Uh, and at, at a point where they are trying to leave they find a new vein of gold in the mine so they're going to put up a new church because they don't have a church that samuelis doesn't have a reverend or a church they're going to put up a church they want the reverend to be there and then I, i'm going to wrap it up here because things begin to build as the people they never get really pushy but they really want him to stay and he kind of wants to stay kind of doesn't want to and deliverance is kind of coming on to him but then the reverend begins to have these images seeing like in the mirror in his dreams like a shirtless beaten up man whose lips are moving like he's saying something but he can't he can't understand what the man is saying who's constantly this man is constantly running after him in his dreams trying to catch him and his and the wife seems to be just getting sicker and then a little better but then much sicker and then there's even a point where the wife is talking like this during the entire conversation so she's not well and she and and eventually they sort of get to a point where they are going to try to leave because it seems like he has to get his wife out of there. And then Moon returns, but they don't have anything for the evil Moon, so he tries to take deliverance. And I, I guess I'll kind of wrap it up around here, where um, the, the Reverend actually, to stop Moon from taking deliverance out of town, shoots and kills Moon, which kind of really bothers him and makes him kind of want to get out of there even more. And they are getting set to go. The chapel, the church has been built. They want them to do him to do one mass in it before he leaves. And, ah, uh, geez, I, I should kind of leave it there. Everything is building and building and building, and the wife is getting sicker, and people are starting to act a little weirder, and Deliverance has her voodoo doll type thing, and this man is chasing the Reverend around in dreams, and it's, it's building towards something which I'm sure will spoil shortly, but which I won't spoil now. Okay, um, so am I right that this was a first-time viewing for both of you? Yes. Yes, for me, yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so this is only my second time seeing it. I, I wrote about it in the book, and when I saw it the first time... I don't remember liking much about it, and um, I don't remember my exact thoughts in the book, except that I had a, a kind of a problem with the binary between the wife and deliverance, because I was just gone out of college where my major was in cultural studies with a focus on gender studies as part of it. And, and I remember thinking the whole idea of like the barren wife is like the lesser than character kind of irked me. And also I think Lynn Loring, there were <laughs> some really intense moments with her um, mm -hmm. that, whoa. And um, which I love now, but like some years have passed and, and I rewatched it and that's still there. But I, I think I was maybe diminishing the film where I shouldn't have. It's, it was a lot better the second time. It's still not my favorite TV movie ever made or anything like that. But um, I thought it was pretty extraordinary for what it was. It's such an oddball movie. I've not really seen anything quite like it that I can think of off the top of my head. And Dan's concise synopsis actually 
um, sort of underlines how there's 10,000 different things actually happening. They all, they all meet at the end, but um, it's a very kind of complex film that feels really simple on the, on the surface. It feels like just a little bit of stuff is happening. This guy comes to a town and stuff happens, but it's, it's really integral, not integral, intricate. And, um, and I appreciated uh, the scope of the film and the ambition, I guess, that probably went behind it. So anyway, I liked it a lot better this time. So let me see what you guys thought of it. And then we'll just dive into the story. So um, James, what did you think? Uh, well, I mean, when you watch things for uh, for a podcast like this, you, you find things to enjoy, right? I think it's got a lot of flaws, this movie, in terms of its pacing. Now, that, now I've actually got your book in, in front of me, actually, so I can tell you exactly what you say about it, but I won't, I won't uh, <laughs> refer. But you do mention, I think, the pacing. I think one thing you said is, yeah, it lacks the brisk pacing of other TV movies. I said I wasn't going to say what you've written, but but I'm, I'm telling you exactly what you've written. It lacks, <laughs> lacks the brisk pacing of other TV movies. And I think you say something like, I'm putting the book down now, I think you say something like, by the time it all kind of kicks off and the intrigue really starts to happen, you might people might have switched over, right? And I think it's 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 kind of slow pacing in the first half of it, all pays off towards the end, um, mm -hmm. but uh, it is very slow pacing. And I and I but at the same time I did enjoy it. And I have to say the last fifteen minutes is terrific, right? Really good, you know. Again, how much are we? We're gonna. We're okay to ruin the the, the the plot. I take it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So it's you know essentially, and I hadn't thought of it in this term. It's like a folk horror movie, right? Mm. Go to the town. You know, they're all in on it. It's uh, some kind of cult or voodoo or whatever, what 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 whatever it might be, and uh, they've kind of tricked the uh, lead characters into being a particular way. Now, um, uh, it's a little bit Wicker Man. What I really like about this uh, film is that they try to get the Reverend, the John Keys, the Roy Thinners uh, actor, uh, uh, character, to betray all his principles. So he kills a man, he uh, under huge provocation, he uh, 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 sleeps with uh, Deliverance uh, uh, again under huge provocation, and uh, not that you give him any credit for that in the book, Amanda. You you, you say he gets everything he deserves. <laughs> well i was angry when i wrote that wasn't i he's got a lot to uh resist whereas in the wicker man if if, if any of your listeners are familiar with it the edward woodward character uh, he's chosen because he's pure because he doesn't uh sleep with the woman because he doesn't uh act uh you know he's he's, he's a he's actually a virgin in that film whereas it's almost like a reverse of that You've got the, you know, they, they seduce him to sleep with a woman who's not his wife. They seduce him into shooting a, a, a bad man all dressed in black, the Henry Silver Moon character. So when all that comes together at the end, and it really is just quite a traditional folk horror movie, it's actually, uh, it actually really, really works. And the final images, the last like minute and a half, are, are, are just really, really fun. That's when it's, it goes to kind of present day. And it, it turns out these these the people the kind of the, uh, the the villains are still still doing this still still dragging people into their into their weird little town which is uh, actually a uh, Salem spelt backwards or something. <laughs> um, which yes. which is really amusing so I did enjoy it and there's lots to enjoy in it but I do think uh, if we if we're going to criticise it as a movie its first forty five minutes really really drag but then it really does kind of pick up uh, there's a few things I'd like to say about it in terms of its 
it's kind of westernness and that, but I, I think maybe we'll hear what Daniel's got to say about it first. Then we can talk about uh, what you know some of my notes that, that, that I picked up on. How's that sound? Great, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, Dan, what do you think of this? Uh, yeah, I um, th- this is this is in that area of TV movies that I absolutely loved, and so even though I I, I do agree it um it do- it does feel like it would have been a great like fifty minute episode of something. And at 72, 73, however many minutes, it feels it, there's just a little too much. I almost everything that kind of happens when it's it's starting off slow and moving along is is important as it goes. But there are a few moments, like it's especially like some of the chats he has with his wife in in bed. Um, where she said, we got to go. We can't, we got to go. You remember we, we said we have to go because we told the Reverend we'd take over. Yeah. And they, they repeat themselves quite a bit. I thought, in yeah. fact, to the yeah. point, I think so. To, yeah. to the point where the first time I watched this, I watched this uh, on a copy you sent us, Amanda, which is a very nice copy. The second time I watched it in sections on YouTube and I thought I put the list in order. So it went like part one, two, three, four, five. So I was watching the end of part two and he's talking to his wife, talking to her about something. And then like my dog ran in the room and barked at me about, and I was distracted and I looked away. And, and when I was looking away, talking to my dog, that the second part ended, the next part began. And when the next part began, they were still in the bed because that's how the the previous part ended. (laughs) But then all of a sudden they were putting up the new church. And I looked and said, wow, I must have, did I drift off or something? When did, when was the big scene where they discovered (laughs) the gold and all the, those other scenes that come in between there. And so I just sat and kept watching it. And about 10 minutes later, I thought, wait a minute, I just missed 15 minutes of the film because the lift, it was out of order. I was watching one, two, four, three, and five in the parts. And it was weird that it, I missed 15 minutes of it. Like, um, from like the 30 minute point to the 45 minute point, I missed 15 minutes, but that second time through, I didn't actually think I should go back and rewatch those. I thought I'm kind of fine. With missing those fifteen <laughs> minutes, I'm kind of I'm kind of fine where I am right here. But having said that, I um yeah the ending the ending is is fantastic, and um I I, I really um I, I part part of the thing I love about it is is the thought that um the moment they come and pick him and his wife up in the beginning, take him into the town. Is there any way that he's ever leaving? Like, is is everything we see from that point to the ending, like, preordained and there's no way out? And they're just kind of having fun with them. And they're like, let's see, before we kill him, let's see how many fun things we can have him do. Like, shoot this one guy and sleep with this one lady and stuff like that. Or is there could there have been a chance where they could have gotten out? You know, it's almost like um, uh, uh, 2000 Maniacs. You know, uh, when 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 all mm. the Southerners bring the Northerners into that town, you think for a t- for a time that it's like, well, these people are never getting out. Now, granted, it's a Herschel Gore and Lewis movie, and it moves slower than the first forty five minutes of this movie. But <laughs> but um, you you in that one, the, the fun thing about that one is you don't know quite f- for a while if it's like, well, we the town caught us, we're dead. There's absolute. It's preordained. We're dead. There's nothing we can do. Or can they get out? Now, luckily, if I remember correctly, in that film, the lead guy finds like some dumb kids who help him get his car or something oh, like that. Wait. Okay. Wait. 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 I want my candy. That kid. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's okay. Yes. That kid. I'm sorry. Yes. That's the only impression I'm going to do in this episode. Okay. <laughs> but that... I was going to do a Tanya Roberts and James Bond's oh, You Do a Kill, but I'm going to skip that oh. one. Yeah. I do really good Tanya <laughs> I Roberts. I know you do. Um, I know. You. So, but um. No, I think that's interesting because I also thought of 2000 Maniacs, and I think Stan might mention in his mm. feedback when we get to it. But um, 
I thought of that movie too, and I thought of The Wicker Man, and I thought of Rosemary's Baby. Mm. So this is really kind of interesting that we're all on the same plane with the, with the referencing whether or not it's directly referencing these films. I don't know, but like, um, but keep going, Dan. It's just I just want to point that out. It predates uh, Wicker Man, doesn't it? Oh, that's so right. it's like yes. two years, yeah. Yeah, I wondered that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I, it, that came into my head too. I think it's because of the conspiracy kind of aspect of it. That's probably why I thought about that and Rosemary's Baby. I just. You know? I just realized what made me think uh, the, the 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 thing that really made me think is this all preordained the moment they enter the the moment they take the ride uh, is the ending already set in stone mm. is the opening because the movie begins with deliverance and her cat um familiar watching a church yep. burn down and and you don't and and presumably every time they invite someone there to kill them they don't build them a church and burn it down i would imagine they probably you know if like if it's a plumber they build a giant outhouse and they hang him in that or something like that but because it's a <laughs> priest they build them a church but that i mean when you see that scene you don't know if it's and why did i just think of the movie scream time um, which has a, a uh, that's going to ruin the ending of that. Oh yeah, the second story in Scream Time. Yeah, with the with the housewife. Yes, yes. You, yeah. Oh, I love you that. Don't, yes. You don't know if what you're seeing is something that's already happened or is it a premonition? Oh, that's so good. And, and, yeah, I see what you're saying. And so when you watch it, the first time I watched it, I really didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, I knew I felt like it wasn't going to turn out well. Um, and it didn't. And and so so I didn't quite know where I knew it was going somewhere bad, but I didn't know how it was it was going to get there in the end. But when you watch it through the second time, you sit there kind of seeing the things happen and you wonder, yeah, how much of it is just like them kind of goofing around with this guy before they have to like before they get to the eclipse. You know, it's like we got two weeks of these clips. Let's really f with this guy. Let's do it. Come on, you know. And just, uh, <laughs> and that that's kind of uh, that that's kind of th that was kind of the thing that hit me the second time I was watching. And of course, hey, this film seems fifteen minutes shorter, but that was just me being big. <laughs> so those are my basic. Thoughts. That's just an yeah. aside. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, that's interesting because I don't know that I felt like the first forty-five minutes were very slow for me. This go, but I knew where it was going. I mean, I've seen this movie obviously before, so maybe. Maybe I got some because I, I was just waiting to see how it builds up to the end this time. I think the first time I watched it, I just got so caught on those two female characters that I let I let it kind of destroy me. And it's amazing that I said anything nasty about Roy Thinnis because he's like my ultimate crush. So, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't deserve bad things to happen to him ever. Um, and so I must have been very angry when I wrote that. I was really angry when I went back to school. I didn't know that. You remind me of, you remind me, he actually had a little bit of a, uh... And I've never seen this man before, Roy Thins. He had a little bit of Matthew McConaughey about him, I, I felt. Mm. Although a little bit, obviously, fuller in the cheeks than Matthew mm. McConaughey. Uh, mm. But there's just some bits I looked at him. I thought, you know, there was a real kind of, uh, I don't know why I would play that. But that was the first, I, I made a note of it anyway. So it must have been must have been significant. But I thought he was quite good, actually. I, no, I don't recall seeing him before. I checked him out, uh, I think, on Wikipedia. I don't remember seeing much of what he's done before. But uh, is he... Is he um, uh, a kind of staple of American television. Was he? Was he? Is he? Is he a big name? He's not a big name, but he's pretty well respected. So, like, so, like, I know you're a big fan of um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and he's semi-referenced in a way. We talked about it on the episode when um, the Sharon Tate character goes to the movie theater. She walks by a 
bus bench and yeah. there's an ad for the invaders, the invaders on yes. it. And that was his big yeah. yeah, that was his big TV show. And that's what he's most famous for. And he reprised that character in a way on the X Files later on. Yes, um that's because right. that show was really influential, right? But Ruth Ennis is also like he started in soaps. He's like one of the last surviving members of the original cast of General Hospital and he was also on one Life to Live, he played two different characters, but I know him best as Sloan Carpenter. I met him, uh, Roy Thinnis, um, about a decade ago, and we talked about him being on soaps, and he's a very nice guy. But he also did a lot of TV movies. Um, we covered one of his movies here called um, The Norless Tapes, oh, which sure. is amazing, <laughs> amazing. And he also was on a TV series at this time, which I'll talk about in the background, called The Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist that's right. Which, yeah, which Steven Spielberg directed an episode of. And we're going to cover the pilot at some point because it's extraordinary. But yeah, so he's like, I wouldn't say he, his name rolls off people's tongues, but I think people who watch classic TV are probably pretty familiar with his face. Right. And um, he was on the cover of TV Guides and stuff like that. And, um, and he was married to the woman who plays his, real life, or plays his wife in the movie as well. And we'll talk about, she's amazing. We'll talk about her as well. But yeah, so I would say he was, he would have been pretty familiar to audiences of the seventies. Um, but I don't know that, I don't know that he was famous, like Matthew McConaughey famous. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, if, if I remember correctly, the, the, in the X-Files, he, he shows up, I think in the last episode of season three and the start of season four, he is, the, I think there's like a, a shooting, at like, um, like a fast food mm. restaurant. And yep. then he said he yes. suddenly he's either there or he arrives and he begins walking amongst the people who've been shot and placing his hands on their chests and arms and their wounds heal. And then he walks away. Right. And the and the the big cliffhanger of season three is Mulder Scully and him in the middle of nowhere as that crazy alien bounty hunter guy is about to kill all three of them. And that's that's the way to say so so it's like I'm obviously Chris Carter was a huge invaders fan as he was yeah. a huge Kolchak fan. Yeah, so so yeah, so he's it's him starring in a TV movie is probably not unusual. I mean, this is a cast that is like ridiculously cast, amazing. We've yeah. got Oscar Oscar winners. Yvette Momo was also the woman who plays Deliverance was a staple on TV at this point and some theatrical. She's in Jackson County Jail, which is a pretty yeah. popular B movie that I actually just rewatched and they made a TV movie sequel called Outside Chance that she stars in as well. It's fascinating the way they put that together. But anyway, but to him him leading this film that has Gloria Graham and Ray Meland in it. I guess that shows that his star power in 1971 was pretty big. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. But uh, but yeah. But today, like he's not. I don't think he has that. Uh, he's not like a classic actor. I think a lot of people think back on, which is unfortunate because you're right. He's very good in this, and he's very good in everything. He he usually plays really serious characters. You don't really see him joking around yeah, a lot. No, I think maybe no, a little no. bit on. Yeah, I think maybe a little bit on One Life to Live when he played Sloan Carpenter. Um, there was maybe a lighter touch to him, but uh, but you don't see it very often. He's very. Um, I don't even know what the f- phrase is. He's just a serious. He's not serious when I met him. He couldn't have been like funnier and sweeter, but uh, he normally plays very serious characters. And um, I think sometimes he comes across as a little aloof. I know that that was some problems people had with the Norlis tapes. Um, I don't I don't see that. I, I want to use the word taciturn, but I don't know if I'm using that correctly. That That's a, a word that just hit my head, hit my hit my mind when I see him. Yeah, it's, possibly. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, he's 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 great. And I you know, I've never seen the invaders. One day I will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. And I'm surprised because I love so much of his stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's mostly his TV movies, I think, that I, and soaps that I know him best from. But um, anyway, I think we got off. What were we talking about? I don't know. I, I, you know what I would like, you know what I would like to say? I derailed everything, didn't I? Because I started talking about it being off. I I was going to mention the the two women in it. Well, I mean, obviously you have Gloria Graham, who's kind of doesn't do too much, but helps Deliverance out. And it's always great to see her because this was around the time she was in The Brilliant Blood and Lace, 
which everyone should see immediately if you have not seen it. That's good, yeah. Vic Um, Tabak. Sweet Vic Tabak getting the big zing twist at the end, too, which is great. Sorry, that's that's sort of a spoiler, but not quite. Um, But uh, the thing I I thought, if that's not a stupid way to begin a sentence, the thing I thought when I watched it is, to me, it felt like, like I said, it felt like almost like an anthology piece extended slight and so when i saw two ladies in it lorna and deliverance i i don't know if it's me being a jerk but i sort of the the thought i had when i saw the two of them was there's a moment where the wife is talking to she's talking to john the reverend and then deliverance comes in with like um something or other like i guess like a water jug or something and um she walks in and there's a brief moment where the wife looks at deliverance and has a look on her face like wait a minute there's another hot woman in this town. What the <laughs> hell? And that, that's what I thought the whole time. It was like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, there's there are two hot women in this town, and one of them is is Lilith. And so there's nothing I'm going to be able to do against that, you know, as hard as I try. But that's that's actually what I thought throughout the whole time was like, you know, she's just a little pissed. It's like, oh, when we were in the desert, it was him, me, and the, the buzzards. I didn't have to worry with the, about a vetment mew in a cute dress wandering around, not being able to speak. Oh, I can't speak. I would love it if she had done something like that. <laughs> oh, it's Deliverance. I can't speak. And I've got a pretentious <laughs> name. Oh, look at me. But she does. She doesn't do that. She's a reverence like. But she she borders on that, does, though. But it's, all, it's kind of. But but to be fair, I think what made me so angry about it was that she was this beautiful, dedicated wife that came to a sermon, even though she was sick. And I mean, to to be fair, he couldn't really. I think you're right. Maybe it was preordained. There was like he couldn't really escape her. But then at the same time, that puts all the onus of the stuff he does on Deliverance's shoulders. And that's not fair because when people do things behind a spouse's back, then, and you put the onus on the other person, then that's not fair. Right. So I think all that maybe was floating around in my head when I was watching it. But when you learn who Deliverance is in the end, you're kind of like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, of course, of course. But but I don't know if the theme of that was was fair to me because it's like Lynn Loring, I think, isn't there a reference to her not being able to have children or something? And and it was like, I can't remember. And, you know, this time watching it, I didn't catch that. So maybe I made that up in my head. But I was like, I was like kind of furious with Lorna's the way she was being treated by people, you know, and I think that stuck with me here. It works better when you kind of know where it's going. And also I think because Lynn Loring goes for it and I'm going to put in a clip where she does that. Like I'm being possessed voice. Yes. Yeah. We had you two weeks and more. My two weeks. Don't you think I know what's going on here? Honey, what are you talking about? Never mind. We're leaving. We're getting out of here. Do you hear me? Listen to yourself, honey. You sound like... You don't like the way I sound, do you? Or the way I look? You'd rather look at someone else, wouldn't you? Lorna, please. Wouldn't you? We're leaving here tomorrow. Just wait until Sunday. No! Those people, those people! They have been awfully busy. The church is almost finished, and I promise... Them! That's all you care about? Well, I've had enough of them and this place. Lorna, you're not well enough to travel. I will never get well here! Never! Lorna. If you're such a miracle worker like they think you are, like you think you are, then heal me, miracle I, I man. I want to help heal you. Heal me. I want to help you. Do you? Or do you want me to die? Yes. Lorna. Then you could stay, couldn't you? Couldn't you, miracle man? I love you. Do you? I love you. We're leaving here tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a mix of I'm possessed and I am really pissed off 
and I cannot <laughs> lower my voice because I that's pissed. It's it's really it's astounding to watch because it's all it's not one long take, but through quite a bit of it, the camera is just looking down at her, like still in the middle of her bed, talking like this. As Roy Thinnis is kind of looking over at her, going, "She's really going for it." Wow, I can't believe they're not yelling cut. And it's it's really. It's like, how long has this woman smoked cigars to get her voice to do that? Because it's really impressive. Yeah, so I was going to say, one of the things why it may, may, maybe it's uncomfortable is that typically in these films, and I, I, I don't mean, um, uh, I'm not trying to be reductive by mentioning the, the, the folk horror. It's got the, the, the folk horror kind of narrative trajectory, if you want, if, if you will. And so normally it's one character who we see this through the eyes of. And the most sympathetic character is, 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 is the lead. And so like you mentioned Rosemary's baby and I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that film, but we see it through, through um, Mia Farrow's eyes. Whereas with this, the most sympathetic character is what, what's, uh, yeah, what's uh, Lorna. Yeah. L- 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 the yeah. Lynn Loring uh, character, Lorna. Yeah. So she, she's the most sympathetic character, but she's not the main character. So I think that's, mm. that's possibly one of the reasons why it's, it's, it was a little bit uncomfortable for you, Amanda, because it is unusual. We, we kind of, if, we, if she would have been the main character, we would have had sympathy for her. But because she's not the main character, she comes across as slightly crazy. I suppose we know, uh, as genre fans, we maybe we get a sense of where it might be going. So it does feel like they treat her character quite cruelly. I would agree with you on that. that you know, she's treated quite in, in, in quite a cruel manner, I think, which... Uh, which is because you've got these two characters, both of them don't know really know what's going on. She's got her own problems and the fact that she's losing her husband and she hates being there. And he's got his own problems. The, the Roy Thinnis character's got his own problems because he's trying to do the right thing. He's also drawn to this deliverance. And so uh, it's it's quite complex, really, when you look at it like that. You know, the, the, the narrative isn't as simple as it, as, it, as it could be. I think in many respects, I think that harms the film. I think it means that it's 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 pacing. It's not as It's not as sharp as it could be. But on the other hand, it does lead to that really extraordinary scene where she's possessed and, uh, and, and, and really lets fly. And as you say, it is a great performance. And it's one of the great moments of the film. And, it, and that's in the last half an hour. Again, the last half hour really, really, really zings, I think. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I never thought about it being because we're watching it basically through Roy Thinnis's eyes. Right. And yeah. he doesn't know what's going on. And so he's he's seeing this also at the same time when he's sort of moving away from her emotionally, whether that was um, his own doing or not. Right. So, yeah, I never really thought of it that way. And it's funny. And this is going to be a totally random reference. But um, I used to do this podcast years ago and we covered um, um, Unholy Rollers with Claudia Jennings. Yeah. And we were talking about how we see the movie through her point of view and um and she's such an angry character so the film is kind of an angry film it's a great film but like um but we were talking about how the point of view directs how we view everything else in the film and and of course that's obvious with most films but I, that's the time i remember like actually talking about how we end up having to watch the movie through the lead character's eyes and i had never really thought of that before because um i guess i was just so caught up in my anger so <laughs> that i just, i couldn't i couldn't let go of it now, you know and i love Yvette Momo and she's great in this and she's so stunning and one of the things that um i remember or not remember but what i was thinking when i was watching it yesterday was that when you watch a lot of westerns or or any of those kind of period pieces that take place in the 1800s or prior in that were shot in this era so many of the women look very contemporary and they have like eyeliner that's like the cat's eye that everybody does now too and everything and, and whatever. And they have a very 60s or 70s quality to them. And Yvette Momo obviously looks like a woman, a contemporary woman in a lot of ways. But she also, because it looks like she's not wearing any makeup and her character looks very much like a natural 
beauty that she fits so well into the time era for me in a way that I don't think a lot of actresses do. Not that that's their fault, but um, in a lot of these movies. And so I was really taken with her because the way she they did her costumes and the way she her character is so beautiful. And even when she's making the little dolls, she's got this childlike quality to her that is so um, sympathetic in a way. And um, and she did a really good job. And uh, I'm a big fan of hers anyway. Now that I've been going back and watching all these old TV movies, I mean, she's in so many of them. I've really come to love her in like the last decade um, that I've started revisiting all these films. But um, and it's but it's interesting because, well, first of all, I just want to mention that when they cut off Lorna's hair, they made the perfect little wig for the wax figure. Yes. I mean, it was perfectly cropped or whatever <laughs> yes. the word is. Like yes. it was like set and curled. It was gorgeous. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, as a binary, it was just, it was a lot to, for me to take in. And I've already said that a bunch. So I'll just leave it there. But anyway, I thought that she was pretty extraordinary in the part as well. So as good as Lorna was, or Lynn Loring was as Lorna, I think Yvette Momo was equally as good. I mean, the whole cast is good, but I do think the two women are really strong in this. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree, and I think that's one of the. But that's one of the reasons why it's um, unusual for me as a um, with the Western element. And I make I made a note. I saw why 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 make this film as a, as a Western, right? Mm-hmm. And I suppose thinking back and what you uh, what some of what you you and Daniel are saying there, as I really like the idea of it kind of plays with the trope of taking the way the agency away from keys so he goes into this small town that's got this problem with the bad man it's replete it's kind of re repeating shane you know the, the classic mm-hmm. uh gunslinger to sort out the small the small town uh from from the bad men you know shane is the is the, the kind of premier example of that but keys doesn't really have any agency right you know he doesn't want to do the things that he's doing you know, he can't leave. He can, you know, he's, he's, he's got a sick wife. So he kind of plays with those conventions of the Western and um, really kind of turns them on their, their head. And I think the, um, the, the putting the focus so much on the women there uh, is, is uh, really part of that. Um, and then that is far more of a trope of horror, I think, than of the Western. And that's why I think it's kind of it's it, the, the Western element of this is a really uncomfortable fit. Apart from those moments with uh, Henry Silver playing Moon where it's then it reverts to this kind of we we understand the tropes here we understand what's going to happen we understand who everyone is i mean he's (laughs) silver's dressed completely in black isn't he i mean it's not that all he's called moon there's a brilliant i'm just gonna mention this there's an absolutely brilliant line in it where uh moon grabs i think it's deliverance uh and he's kind of pouring her in a in an obscene way and uh roy thinner says to him moon in the name of decency and moon says never heard of it and uh, <laughs> oh, Henry Silver, <laughs> really great, uh, really great uh, line. Uh, and then he gets shot a few a few moments later. But yeah, that that, yeah. that that's a good that's a good scene. I, I just uh, I just saw uh, rewatched Escape from the Bronx uh, the other day. The uh, the 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 um, well, it's a beautiful film. I was going to say the beautiful crazy ass film with trash and everything. But Henry Silver's in that. And I just like whenever Henry Silva is in it, and he he's he's a little more subdued in this. It's funny he's kind of subdued, but his outfit isn't. So so the way he's <laughs> dressed and the way he looks is almost yelling at you, whereas he's he's slightly calmer, which which is an interesting um uh, which is an interesting sort of fit dichotomy there. And I, I like too that when. The moon shows up. Mainly, moon shows up twice. Te- technically, he's more, but the two times moon shows up is the first time is right, like at the beginning, and when he shows up, 
he attacks the old man and the reverend yes. joins in and it's very brave in saving the old man. And then the second mm-hmm. time he shows up, uh, Moon tries to grab Deliverance and take her away to do whatever. And, and John obviously ends up shooting him. But we know at the end that that's all a farce. All of this was all a farce. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that the first time it's sort of like, well, we've, we've chosen John for what we want to have happen um, at, at black noon, as it were. Um, let's see if he's we, – we see that he's a good man. We see that he loves his wife. Let's see if he's brave. So they have him do the thing to Joseph and, and the Reverend jumps in there. And then when that's proven and they're like, okay, let's screw with him. Now they bring Moon back. So let's see if we can kill, let's see if we can have him kill him. And I, I kind of like the Moon is brought back for a couple specific things. Once to test the bravery and once just to see if the, they can get the Reverend to kill somebody. <laughs> just to see if he can do it. I, I want to mention two things here. First of all, Henry Silva looks like he's having yes. a blast, but I'm thinking back to like alligator. I, does he always look like he's having a blast? I think he I might. Think so. so I think he, yeah, I think he just knows how to have fun. But that scene you mentioned with Joseph where he's dragging him on the back of his wagon or whatever, that was a really harrowing scene. And it was, it was also really bizarre because Hank Warden's dialogue delivery is really different than the other actors. That's, in the yeah. Film. Yeah. And I, I love it because it's weird. And, um, and it's kind of offsetting and jarring in a way. And so when he's being drugged, this old man, he was 70, I think, when he made the movie. Um, he's being drugged behind this wagon and he's, and uh, Roy Thinnis is trying to get in there and, and save the day or whatever. And he keeps saying, you know, thank, thank you, Reverend. Thank you. Thank, well, he's being drugged yes. <laughs> down the ground. On this, and the way he's saying in this really calm mm-hmm. demeanor, it's like it's upsetting yeah. to me. Like it, it elicited an emotion in me because I couldn't really figure out like what I was feeling. Moon, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but our hand shall not be upon thee. Uh. Moon, he's an old man. He meant no harm. Just an old man. Let him go. Let go of him. You'll kill him. Stop it. Turn him loose. Let him go. Thank you, Reverend. Thank Let him loose. You'll kill him. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you kindly, Reverend. Reverend? So we got a preacher man among us. Let him go. Turn him loose. I'll let him loose when I'm ready. Of all the scenes in the film that I can recall off the top of my head, aside from Lynn Loring's um, like possession scene, if you want to call it possession, that's a good word for it, um, is is this scene. It was really striking and startling to me. I I, I just I couldn't get past <laughs> it. So it's not Robocop, not sure. but like it was it was upsetting. It was upsetting because it seemed so cruel. But his response to being drugged by the this guy was so like lack of fear on his part. Gratitude and quoting scripture, if need be, as long as, long as he yeah, does that's that. Right. That's, and Hank Warden, that's the way. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about him when we get to the cast, but I, I love Hank Warden. He always, he's got, he's got that delivery. You can't, at first you think sometimes he's, like the first, I'll, t- I'll tell you later the first movie I ever saw Hank Warden in, but I thought he was goofing the way his delivery was. That sort of strange way, but that's just his delivery. And that's the way he does it, which is really... It, like you said, it's kind of off-putting at first, but then when you kind of get it after a while, it can still be off-putting. But you realize, you know, he's not um, – he's not. well, maybe he was crazy. I, but you realize he's not crazy. That's him. That's him doing his thing. Like Henry Silva camping it up every chance he gets being a madman. Henry, Hank Warden, that's the way he, 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 he talks. 
Yeah, it reminded me of, and this is another random reference, but like, so uh, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. when they go to the gas station at the first time and the sh- cook is there and he's talking to them, there's a guy washing their window. Do you remember him? And yeah. every time the cook walks away, he just leaves all the soap on the window and he follows him. And then the cook comes back to say something to them. And then he comes back and starts cleaning the window. And then the second the cook turns away again, he drops everything and he starts following him. And it was like this weird weird offsetting moment that like it's not scary but it's there's something about it that makes everything feel really weird and strange and so so hank warden's dialogue delivery was perfect in that way Uh because it's not like anything really disturbing is actually happening but there's something about the surrealism of it that kind of sets the tone right whenever he's on screen and i really appreciated that especially because a lot of times he's up against ray Milland, who um i don't know is is ray Milland british i i don't know i never actually looked it up to i don't know he is but um he's perfect i'll tell you that much but He's from Wales. Yeah. Oh, as well. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, Welsh American, it says. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that either. Because when when his character um, Caleb speaks, he seems like the most. I mean, he's as nuts as the rest of these goofballs. But but he seems the most sort of practical. Yes, we started the mine, and then we did this. Oh, but Reverend, the Lord says, "Seek and ye shall find, even in a mine." No, that's not in the Bible. I made that second half up. But um, you know, so so it's when you hear the two of them talk. It's such a weird. It's not like a Dean Martin Jerry Lewis kind of thing, but it's a weird thing to hear. <laughs> like Ray Milland speak, and then Hank Warden come out in his strange sort of um, um, cadence. I, I I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah. but sp- speaking the scripture all the time it's a really interesting um uh matchup between those two yeah i liked it a lot it's one of my favorite aspects of the film i think oh i remember the other thing i want to comment real briefly and i don't want to keep going back to the two women but when we're talking about like not necessarily seeing women as the focal point of westerns i think james was sort of saying and more of a horror thing but but and i've said this before um you know tv movies were uh, targeted women as the main demographic women aged 18 to 49 and so although this clearly is not a woman's story the fact that they spend so much time with the women was probably intended um to capture the female audience um at that time now how they're depicted i mean you could argue whether or not that's a good or bad thing but having two I would imagine fairly well known. I know Vet Momo was pretty famous. I think Lynn Loring was too at the time. Actresses uh, having having a good amount of screen time was probably uh, to the benefit of that demographic. And so it was almost like, even though the Western has a certain structure, they had to work around it because they had to think about the format that they would people would be watching the, mm-hmm. the a Western on. Yeah. And therefore women, I mean, obviously True Grit is the, you know about a young girl, but um, and I don't know enough about Westerns, but I think that might be why we see so much about the women. And that's kind of interesting to think about I think in a way knowing female um, genre fans as well like I do they quite like seeing stereotypes or archetypes of women being played around with in quite playful ways and and having these kind of uh, absolutely you mentioned it being a binary Amanda where you've got the the kind of seductress the kind of innocent but she's also a seductress as well the deliverance character as well as the kind of harpy crazy wife at home the Lynn Lauren character uh, I think you know they, the film does try to play around with those stereotypes a little bit, I think, those archetypes. And so I think there is, I can't speak for women, of course, but I think there's enjoyment to be had from a woman watching this film, especially watching this man have absolutely no idea what's going on and being played around in the middle as, as well. That seems to be like a trope of, of kind of women-centric horror, I would say. Again, I, I definitely think that th- those elements come from more from the horror side 
definitely more than they do from the the western side yeah i would probably without knowing much about westerns i would probably agree with that and 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 it's it's interesting i i I like just thinking of like uh with with the reverence sort of his wife is basically in that room almost the entire time so whenever he's in that room it's oh no my wife is she going to be growling at me today is she going to be happy today but the moment he leaves the room he's in a town where everybody seems to love him so there's got to be got to be a weird sort of there's got to be a weird sort of feel just like walking down the street morning reverend that pause was deliverance right there saying how are you doing she can't speak so that was just a little pause um (laughs) and everyone's saying hello to him and stuff like that and then he's like but at the end of the day i gotta go see my wife and i don't know if she's gonna be sick if she's gonna be well if she's gonna be crazy and and there's got to be a point in that too where that that must be tempting to him where it's like i i can be out walking the entire town and they adore me or I can go in with my wife and we're going to have the same. It's almost like, um, what is it, Kolchak and Vincenzo in like the Night Strangler, where there are like eight scenes in that movie where they argue pointlessly over and over again. This is kind of mm-hmm. like that, where it's almost like, you know, do I go out into the world where everyone loves me and exciting stuff is happening? Or do I go into the room where we're going to have the same argument? And unfortunately, they don't know it, but like she, the wife, the moment she seems well, she's suddenly going to be unwell again. So it's almost like a weird cycle of I can enjoy the world or we can have the same conversation in this little bedroom over and over again. And sometimes Gloria Graham will come in and we'll ask her what it was like working with Vic Tabak and she won't tell us. <laughs> not Gloria, why not? <laughs> well, but, but it's interesting because they really do put Reverend John Keyes up on a pedestal, don't they? Yes. Because he thinks he's teaching people to walk again and he's making people, uh, he's giving people the ability to speak again. And it's almost like building him up to a, almost a godlike complex because he comes to this town and all of a sudden he can, he has like this, what feels like to him probably a supernatural power to heal people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he's at some point, I guess he probably starts buying into his own game and then you start losing perspective on what's going on around you. Right. Because everybody is so good to you all the time and pretending like you've done all these amazing things that nobody else on the planet could possibly do. So yeah, why not start messing around with this other woman? I mean, I can do anything, right? And so, I'm Roy Thinnis. Like, oh, kind I'm, of, sorry. Yeah, I'm Roy, I'm Roy Thinnis. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. And so, like, it makes sense to me, like, how he could get so hoodwinked by the end of the film. You know what I mean? Despite everything. And also, you're right, because it is a dark home to come home to, but not because she wants it to be dark. She's obviously a very supportive yeah. wife, but, like, but, like, she's forced to sort of become this other person, which is, you know, it may, it does, every time he turns that, handle you know to get into the door he's like oh my god here we go you know and then and her eyes get really sunken in and like she's just in another planet but yeah that's an interesting way to look at it Uh, i think the film would have worked a lot better for me if if they'd have cut out the opening the pre-credit sequence of the of the the burning and the the cat jumping on uh, on to deliverance so it kind of gives the game away of the kind of movie that's going to be clearly they're trying to advertise yeah, the fact that yeah. it's, a, it's a horror time but it, it really i mean if you just edited that that bit off the film would work so much better you know i think and, I, and one note i made was that I, I felt the horror tropes within it aged far more quickly than the the western tropes and maybe that's because the western's always been an historical drama apart from mm-hmm. the very very you know great train robbery of you know, 1903 right maybe you know that's close to the period when it's when it's set but uh the horror tropes here of like mysterious cats and voodoo and 
weird dreams. They they age far. They've aged far more badly than the Western tropes, I think, and the, the, yes. the things that we associate yes. with the Western. Yeah. And but just taking that, if they'd have taken that pre-credit sequence off, I think mm. the film. And, and there's another scene later in the film as well where you've got this the, the cutting between Deliverance affecting the is it is it, is it a doll is it like the doll of uh, Lorna. Yeah, and then uh, her being like, yeah. exactly, yeah, and her being affected by it, right? It's like you'd have just have seen it from Lorna's perspective of going out. And you've got you hear these people kind of doing this chanting, and she goes out, and there's this dead owl there. It's it would have otherwise been a good sequence, but it's it seems really it's a long crawl, I think, when you already know the kind of plot and where it's going, and uh, it's it really was just only a couple of edits away from being far more effective than it is. That's I wonder true, why, yeah. why 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 yeah because. Yeah. If you had if, well, if you had left out that opening sequence, I mean, the title "Black Noon" doesn't um, imply a horror film. To me, it implies High Noon, a variation of High Noon, straight up western. So, if they left out that opening sequence and it had just begun with um, this guy, this reverend out in the middle of the desert, and these people save him and take him into the town, you you could have sort of milked for even longer the fact that. You know, um, the wife is sick and the reverend's just meeting the people in the town. And then you meet the evil guy who shows up and maybe for a time you think, okay, that's what it's about. We have to find a way to stop Moon. But it's not about that at all. But no, yeah, you kind of. Yeah. I, I like the opening scene, but I, I think you're right. I don't think it should be there. I, I think, I think it would make it more. Um, you, you, if you didn't know what was going to happen, you, you'd spend more time. You, you'd spend less time going. Okay, when does the weird stuff that we were promised in the pre-credit sequence begin to happen? You know, as, mm-hmm. as aside from looking at it as like like a drama that might involve like a like maybe like like maybe the Reverend learns how to shoot a gun, you know, like a, yeah. like a like a like so he's going to come up against Moon and maybe Moon shows up with like three or four guys in tow and there's going to be a big shootout or something like that, you know. But then it becomes a supernatural thing where the you know the demon Lilith appears in the end, kind of thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I kind of I kind of like that now removing the opening. I, I you know. I just want to comment real briefly that um, a movie that we haven't discussed here, and I don't know if you've seen it, James, but and it's almost the same film except it's a Western, is Crowhaven Farm, which was a TV movie that aired in 1970, oh, no. the year before this. And it actually has an opening that is somewhat similar, I think, when it starts with the reading of the will and then the guy dies in the car accident. Mm, yeah. I don't think there's a reference as to who killed the guy in the car accident. But they need that guy to die so that the couple that would inherit the house if he died could move to Crowhaven Farm. And then it's got kind of a similar ending. We've covered this um, movie on yes. the podcast, and I think most people are familiar with it. It was a top 10 rated uh, TV movie the year it aired. Um, it was huge, huge. So I kind of think maybe the structure mm. was might have been yeah. trying to copy Maybe even more so than these other films we've referenced because uh, because it was made for TV. Mm-hmm. But that was told through a woman's point of view. And that might be where I'm getting the Baron thing from because she was a Baron woman who was having problems with her husband. And um, and then there was a, kind of this sexy nymphy woman that came around and drove she, she, uh, she was a delight. playing nuts. She was the best. <laughs> she was the best. But she was having sex with Lloyd Bachman, oh, sure, yeah. which we course, all want. Yeah. We all want that. It's very reminiscent of that film. And that film actually is... Um, steeped in folk horror now i don't know that much about folk horror but um i have been interviewed about folk horror before and i've also uh written a little bit about crowhaven farm and its folk horror aspects um and so uh so it's interesting that you made that connection which i didn't make because it i think it might actually have been inspired by several folk horror films have you seen uh, children of the corn sure I have not. Another confession. It's like I'm giving nothing away, you know, to say like it's well, it's all revealed 
in the first like op opening sequence. Now, the children, if you could re-edit Children of the Corn to take out the bits where they reveal that there's really it's a supernatural thing, then uh, it, it would have been a far more intriguing film. And I still really like the movie, but I just think it's this kind of like giving the game away too early on. I, it's it's going to be it would be like the Wicker Man seeing them build yes. the Wicker Man in the opening sequence, yeah. and then having Edward Woodward turn up onto this. Scottish Islands, rather rather than you know revealing it. Oh, this is a bit strange. You know, they they kind of you can crank up the tension and the suspense and the kind of surrealism and the weirdness when it happens bit by bit. But in th this film and you know Children of the Corn and that that one you just mentioned, uh, they they seem to kind of give the game away way, way too early, really, for me. Um, to 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 make it well, it's just a simple editing choice. But it's not you know it's not just this film that does it. Many of the films. Do this, make the same creative choice, and uh, you know, it's difficult for me. Yeah, I guess they, they could have left the what Deliverance's character could do hidden a lot longer in the movie. Exactly. She could have just been this this sweet gal who was helping out, and it could have been presented more as like the wife is being abnormally jealous towards Deliverance. But Deliverance is actually doing something that mm. we don't see and hurting the mm -hmm. wife, but we maybe don't see that until later. And Lorna is just like, why are you so jealous of Deliverance? She's just a nice mm -hmm. guy, so she can't speak. What? Do you, she makes candles. I love her, you know, stuff like that. And and you see the wife going a cool little hoo hoo cuckoo, and then suddenly you learn what Deliverance is up to, and that the wife's been right all along. That that might have worked better. I don't know. Rewrite. I I love her candles. They're so hot. <laughs> I love the way they burn. Right. And then like and like it all sounds really innocent, <laughs> sort of. And then and then the wife is like, oh my god, he loves her candles. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yes. And that would be upsetting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Those candles. Um, but we're going to have to try to wrap this yes, up because yes, I know we're kind right, of yeah. going along and only because we have another film to get to. And so um, is there anything else you guys wanted to say about? We got so much out of this. It was amazing. Uh, is there anything else you guys wanted to say about Black Noon? There's two things I want to say. It's uh, um, uh, <laughs> One of them is the... In this film, he see, he gets those dreams, doesn't he, of the other man who we turned out was like is the man who came before oh. him or something that was there. Right. And um, in the uh, Western High Plains Drifter, Clint Eastwood, which I think again was 1973, which comes after this, there's that, if, if people have seen it, he's a kind of ghostly kind of cowboy who comes into this, this town, this kind of bad town. And um, he gets visions as well of the previous sheriff, right? He becomes the sheriff of the town. He gets visited. Uh, visions of the previous sheriff so it reminded me of that there was you know i was also looking for those connections but i thought that was really interesting how he gets these visions for the person who he doesn't know who it is but we find out later he's been in the town before i think that's i've got the the, the, the plot correct from black black noon there which i thought was really fun and then also was and this is i'm going completely off now maybe this is where i can bring, bring an element of the, the, the political comment that you mentioned before we before we started recording but i really love the the scene after the credits where they're really struggling in the desert with their wagon and the vultures are circling and they're dehydrated and they're about to collapse and their wagon's broken. And it really reminded me of how difficult it would have been for settlers and people and normal working people and working class people in America as it was developing and spreading west. And the thing it reminded me of was um, the Ken Burns documentary television series called The West from 1996, mm -hmm. which... Uh, uh, you you might not have seen, but uh, if you ever get a chance to watch that miniseries, it's brilliant in terms of its uh, the way it shows the hardship of people in the old west, right? And 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 uh, and working people and what they had to go through. And uh, so I did like that opening scene of Black Moon because I, Black uh, Black Moon because I have been uh, uh, quite critical of it, but 
it did have elements that I really enjoyed. And one of those was that struggling with the wagon, vulture circling, how the, the physical hardship of living in the old West, which sometimes you miss in action Westerns, right? So I thought that was great. I just wanted to say that. I'm glad you said that because that's going to be a heavy duty thing I talk about in the next film. I was going to mention Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's the crux of the next film for me. Um, So, but did you have anything you wanted to add, Dan, before I do the, because I have a lot of backup. It turns out that this movie was kind of heavily documented because of all the actors. Okay, I I was going to mention something that might be part of the, uh, just a historical thing for when it was made. In 1971, not not like the 19th century, um, but this is this is November fifth, 1971. This is the year of the rural purge on television. Yes. So this was the year that, as Pat Buttram said, every show. Well, there really aren't many trees in this one, but but every show with a tree in it got canceled, including almost all the westerns. In in 70, 70, 1971 season, um, westerns. Your main, your you you still had your main three. You had your Gunsmoke, you had your Bonanza, you had the Virginian, but you really didn't have any other westerns. And the Virginian had been changed to the Men from Shiloh. Um, that's the season Lee Majors was on it. That 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 show was. I, I want to say at the end of the season, it was like number seventeen in the ratings, but it still got canceled. Because they were canceling, because of All in the Family and all the shows over that, they were canceling everything. The only shows that got through were Bonanza, which lasted for like one more year. Haas dies. And then it's just Michael Landon and Lauren Green, and everyone was like... Haas died? Well, well the, guy, the guy who played Dan Blocker. Oh, yes. I know, I know. Yes. Oh, Dan Blocker yes, died? Yes, I, I don't... Uh, Oh, I didn't know he died on the run of the series. It, it, during the during the oh. either before the last season or during the last season, they cut the last season, uh, which I think is seventy two, seventy three. I could be wrong. They cut it short because his he dies. I think right before the season begins, and it's just Michael Landon and Lauren Green, and they only go like half a season. Why didn't they bring in June Lockhart like they did in Petticoat Junction, Junction? They could have. <laughs> they should. They should have brought Uncle Joe in and had him be the head of Hosses. Yeah, I'm a huge old, fan of Uncle Joe. Old Hoss. So, so the just to just to kind of give some context to Rural Purge, and we talked about this, I think, when we did the Harry O episode. So just very quick. So what they did was uh, those shows were really popular, like you said, like they were still bringing in ratings, but the demographics they found out when they were breaking them down by region, the the audiences were coming from quote unquote undesirable parts of the country. So like the South was watching Petticoat Junction, but they weren't getting the more urbane places like L.A. and New York to watch them. The networks were like, oh, so we're getting the eighteen to forty nine demographic from women, but they live in the South. And for some reason, that was really distasteful to them. And so they wanted they wanted uh, more sophisticated audiences. So they canceled all those shows. and They brought in shows like Cario, which is a great show, and a lot of cop shows like Kojak. And those are all great shows. But what happened was, well, first of all, they saturated the market with like shows like that. But also, um, like two years later, the Waltons premiered. Yes. And and that's not the rural because yeah, yeah. it's set in the 30s. I guess it is. I mean, it's back in and they, they own a mountain and it's during the Depression. And that show was like the biggest thing television saw. Right. Ever. And so then they were like, oh, wait, <laughs> we want this audience yes. again. Right. And so and so then there was there was more shows like that. But like they they shot themselves in the foot by doing that because they got rid of a lot of neat shows that were doing really well because the networks were being really um, hoity-toity is the only word I could think of about their audiences. And it was unfair, I think, to do that and very discriminatory. And so The Rural Purge is like a really fascinating um, historical moment. And I'm so glad yeah, you got that. Yeah, and they, they canceled. I mean, Green Acres and Beverly Hillbillies both would have had another season if it hadn't happened. May 
Mayberry RFD was like number two or three in the ratings, and it still got canceled. You're canceling a show that's number like three in the ratings? That's ridiculous what they did. And like I said, Bonanza just lasted by the skin of its teeth. Gunsmoke went to 1975. Probably would have gone longer, except I think James Arness was like 80. And he was like, I can't, I can't <laughs> do this anymore. But the thing about Black News, one of the one of the things like sort of the weirdness of some of the Western stuff in it is this was a time when they were wiping clean like the Westerns on American TV. So to have a Western, um, it surprised me when I saw the date. I thought this was going to be like 1970. When I saw that it was November of 71, I thought, wow, that's like the time when they're wiping the slate clean. Of all this, which made me think of it more like a horror anthology kind of thing, because you can still do westerns if you throw in a little hybrid, sort of, another genre. But straight up westerns in at this point, 1971, unless you were Bonanza or Gunsmoke, you were not there anymore. That is that is really fascinating information. I wonder, was that because they thought you, you'd have to tell me this? Would they think that southern audiences were were, were poorer than people living in metropolitan areas? Was what 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 was the reasoning beyond it was it was it just snobbery what what was the what was the what was the reason i would say there probably is a class element yeah. to it i mean i've never investigated it through that perspective but it would seem kind of obvious to me that it was like the southern people like if you watch a lot of so if you look at my book i wrote and i should have i mean i would write the essay a little differently now but i wrote about um nightmare in batham mm-hmm. county and how it's a hybrid of sort of the hillbilly horror and of uh women in prison and um and if you look at how tv depicted outside of these tv shows that we talked about where i think the depictions are pretty positive the uh tv and also uh theatricals were looking at the south really poorly i mean look at deliverance of course sure. like, i mean look, what a travesty right she and, was gorgeous in terms of like how oh wait oh oh yeah. oh <laughs> Oh, yeah, she was gorgeous with the film Deliverance, where, you know, it's really like basic. They're very basic. And I think a lot of the portrayals of Southern people on television then was a reflective of how I think the studio system felt about people in the South. Um, possibly a lot of it was unwarranted. Some of it probably not. But of course, I mean, you could say that about any class or person or region. But yeah, I do think some of it was probably class-based. I do think some of it was snobbery. I think I think the demographic comes out of laziness too, because if you've got a demographic that you're looking for and you're marketing towards them, and then you realize that the people from that demographic are coming from a region that might not be buying your products, it's probably okay to start looking for different types of advertisers instead Mm -hmm. of just canceling all your shows and trying to create products that are you know so so i think it was a mix of all of those whatever it was i think it was a poor decision because because they're cutting out a huge portion of their audience um and also uh two years later the waltons just blew it all out of the water and they felt really stupid about it so like um but it's a really fascinating moment it's been written about but i don't know if there's been a book i don't think so about it it's it's yeah but yeah it's it it could all be covered. It's, yeah, it's just so weird to see like all in the family shows up, and it's so huge. And the um, not 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 the ripoffs, but like the follow ups, like your Sanford and Sons, your Mods, your things like that, come out immediately. And suddenly, it's like we got to get rid of everything. It's almost like we got to get rid of everything from the '60s. That's not quite what it is, but yeah. that's almost what it is. Because even like Bewitched, which had been on for a thousand years, would end the next season. And as far as I know, Bewitched was more like one of those shows that probably could have gone for a million years. But it and it's it's weird too when you look at the shows because some like Hee Haw is very obviously to a specific crowd, but then like Green Acres, oh, I love Hee Haw. Green Acres is really weird. And the final season of Beverly Hillbillies, if you've ever seen it, is really odd. 
And and so, so it's like part, part of it to me is a rural thing. But then when you look at the fact that like by 1973, I think every single My Three Sons was another one that every single 60s show had been canceled by 73, apart from like some variety shows and like Gunsmoke. So it's almost a time. It's almost like they're they're saying like we're going to wipe the whole slate clean. And start fresh. But the rural purges were obviously where it all began. But it, the yeah. more you look at it, it's like, this is really weird that they did that. There was a, there was also a lot of critique, too, because we were in Vietnam, yes. right? And then, and then like, a last bastion of, like, the 60s and the way they structured their television would be something like the Brady Bunch. Yes. Where it's, like, just a throwback to Leave it to Beaver in that all your problems get solved in 22 minutes, right? And everybody's happy. And, and so a lot of um, – and I talk about this in the lecture that I do on TV movies. A lot of the – uh, audience members were turning to news programs mm. because they didn't feel like TV was reflecting things that they were interested in, in meaning that they weren't dealing with topics that these people were dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And so the TV movie was born out of that because you could take a hot topic and make one film out of it. Like Vietnam would be the ballad of Andy mm. Crocker, right? So like with Lee Major. So you could take that and you don't have to, you don't have to get people to watch 22 episodes of the ballad of Andy Crocker, but you could come in and you can discuss Vietnam and and if people hate it, then they hate it. If they love it, they love it. But you can gamble more on the TV movie. So it was it was trying to address, not always obviously like them, something like Black Noon doesn't, but there were plenty of TV movies that were very topical and of its time, and they were also born out of that sort of idea that the '60s was too sugar coated, mm-hmm. and um and that they wanted people wanted to see their 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 day to day lives reflected on television, and that's where we started to see things like All in the mm-hmm. Family. And um and San Francisco especially and um and so like so but the cop shows I think were meant to capture the cosmopolitan places because they always took place in L.A. or San Francisco of course streets San Francisco or New York and and they were grittier and um and they were meant to capture that particular audience so yeah there's yeah. a lot of stuff happening in in 1971. Um, in TV, probably a pinnacle year. Yeah, now that we've been and talking look about at Col- it. that's when Columbo began regularly. I mean, Columbo is set in the beautiful mansions of LA and with the rich and wealthy and beautiful people. And the hero is this schleppy guy driving his ugly car who show who shows up and completely tears him apart. Yeah, yeah, he's like a he's like a compromise, right? Because he does come in and he speaks to a to a different class of person, mm-hmm. I think. And then and then he's always figuring things out that these rich people think they're above, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in a way, he's an offshoot of Sherlock Holmes yes. and this is another tangent, <laughs> but like and I have to go back and read Sherlock Holmes to fully back my argument in this, but I think Sherlock Holmes was a reaction to, um, I can never remember the term and I feel so stupid now, but you know, the industrial age and, um, where, where machines were coming in and taking over people, people's jobs. And there was all this anxiety and here comes this guy who can figure out anything, Mm -hmm. right? He's always smarter than the machines taking over people's livelihoods. And so Columbo is that guy to me, Mm -hmm. you know, he's an extension of this sort of anxiety of that. And so I think Levinson and Link have said that in, um, their several books that they've written and interviewed views and stuff but they did call him the proletariat and he he's sort of a compromise of that like they sort of understood that regular everyday people were watching these shows and that Columbo was somebody that you could totally gravitate towards because he was every he was quirky Mm -hmm. but he was every man in so many ways right he's so much more relatable than the criminals Mm -hmm. you know and so that's what made him uh so enduring also, the show is so, so well good. written. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, but anyways, let me just give yes. you a little background on this. So, sorry. Uh, yeah, this is like, this is going to be like a three-part podcast. So, Black Noon, 
aired on CBS on November 5th, 1971, which was a Friday. Um, it ran against The Odd Couple uh, and Love American Style on ABC. And on NBC was another TV movie called A Howling in the Woods. And something really interesting about that is that, so A Howling in the Woods reunites Larry Hagman and Barbara Eden from I Dream of Jeannie. And yet we, so they were a uh, real R-E-E-L couple. And then we have a real R-E-A-L couple playing against them in Black Noon with Roy Thinnes and Lynn Loring. So I thought that was just kind of a funny little anecdote that I threw in. One day I'm going to pick two movies that aired on the same night and we'll discuss them um, and figure out which one we would have watched. But Dan, you said that there were several movies that aired in this era. Oh, yes. Like this week. Or... Just, just right around. I'll just I'll just flip through Merrill here. Um, oh, oh, geez. I didn't. Wait a minute. I see Yvette Mimu. Oh, a couple of weeks. No, a week before? Or so, October 23rd. Death takes a holiday. Get out of here! Oh my, oh my gosh! I've got my mom, yes. my favorite. Uh, and then, um, uh, what do we got? Uh, oh, oh, uh, October thirtieth is a little game with the crazy kid and the the gun, right? Oh, does am I making that up? Yeah, yeah. we've covered all we, these. Covered, that was Ed Nelson. Yeah, and yeah. of course, Howling in the Woods. You already said um, the day after. Um, not the movie. The day after. Oh, the day, the yeah, yeah. Well, it's the movie, but it's the one with um with uh, what's his name, Dick Van Dyke, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah. No, that's the morning, the morning after. after yes, the morning after. That's yeah. the morning after. Yes. Um, day the day after Black Noon aired, we got Revenge with uh, the Great Revenge of Shelley Winters. Yes. Few, oh, we've covered all these. A few days later, here's when we did Old Spindler Mutilate, which I know. Oh, is supposed yeah, to we're going to do that. One. And I will. I will. I won't know too much. Oh, that that bad Ellery Queen movie. With um, Peter Lawford aired like two weeks oh, it's not later. Bad. It's got that neat snake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got well, that cartoon snake that comes in. Eight days after Black Noon aired, a film starring I don't know the, I don't know this guy Dennis is he French Dennis Weavier directed by Steven Spiel something um, Steven Spiel Snape <laughs> a film called Duel aired uh, just <laughs> oh eight, nobody's heard of that aired eight days after Black Noon I mean this was I'm I'm sure I could find more if I flipped around but it's so crazy like this this time period to just see like oh oh and there a few weeks later a film nobody watched Earth Two yeah. Oh yeah, nobody did. Nobody watch them. Um, but but yeah, <laughs> those those were all the films like within the one or two week vicinity of this one, and it's like um, it's it's like it's like going into the late '60s in rock and roll or something like that, and like seeing all these classic albums come out one right after another, sort of thing. It's it's crazy. Look at them. Yeah. It was a great year for for TV movies, um, and but this one did not do so well in the ratings. It got a seventeen, oh. yeah, seventeen point oh slash thirty, which I think means like thirty percent of the audience with uh, was watching. Basically, it came in number ninety two for the nineteen seventy one seventy two season, which is pretty low. Howling in the Woods did a lot better. It came in at number fifty one with a twenty point five slash thirty five. This movie though did have a rerun in nineteen seventy two on May nineteenth. It was filmed near Palmdale and Lancaster in California. Um, and the newspaper started mentioning Black Noon in August uh, in articles promoting the CBS lineup uh, because they had started this new thing called Friday Night Movies that was um, they were hoping would be as big as the ABC Movie of the Week. Production actually began on ABC, uh, I'm sorry, on ABC on August 25th. The CBS Friday Night Movie of 1971-1972 was intentionally a weekly movie program directed at producing genre fare. And I think the CBS... Um, Friday Night Movie was where we saw Crawl Space for the first time, which was a, a movie we covered. It was like on episode three that, that I love by John Newland. Um, so they were all produced by a man named Philip Berry, who actually is kind of famous for this uh, TV movie production field because he was able to bring Mia Farrow back to the small screen because she had been on um, Peyton Place and then had gone on to do Rosemary's Baby and tons of stuff or whatever, and she was famous. And so he had her come do a TV movie called Goodbye Ragdoll, which ended up becoming a movie called Goodbye Raggedy Ann. 
that I had never heard of till I read this article. Uh, that movie co-starred Hal Holbrook. And also one of the movies they produced in the season was also the gangster thriller uh, Mongo's Back in Town. So that was like a really high profile film when it came out. That starred um, Joe Don Baker. So uh, Barry said about doing TV movies um, and th this particular production was, quote, what we're doing is a microcosm of what is happening in Hollywood. It's the individual filmmaker with an idea who goes off and makes a movie who causes, which causes excitement today. We're trying to do the same thing in television. Almost everything we do is on location, almost no work within the studios. Our one rule was that these are movies. They should never look like episodes of series. Any other rules? We had an idea our story should be contemporary. But then Andy Fenaday brought in a great script for an offbeat Western titled Black Noon. So we're making it with Ray Milland and Yvette Momo with Kowalski directing. That's, um, oh my God, what's his first name? Bernard Kowalski? So, uh, yes. yeah. Black Noon was uh, producer-writer Andrew J. Fenaday's first genre film. The network described it as a Western Rosemary's Baby. So there's a reason why we got that feeling from it. Gloria Graham's casting made the newspapers, of course, because she was an Oscar-winning actress. She won an Oscar in 1953 for The uh, Bad and the Beautiful. Um, Screen Gems is the production company that was behind Black Noon. They also produced Brian's Song the same year, which was the number two highest-rated TV movie of that season. Uh, Leonard Goldberg oversaw Screen Gems. Um, Leonard Goldberg just passed away, and I'm bringing it up because he did most of his productions later on with Aaron Spelling, and he made a huge amount of uh, amazing TV movies. I believe he did This House Possessed, actually. The hiring of composer Dominic Frontier, I don't know how you say his name, Frontier, made the papers towards the latter part of September. So this was getting a lot of press. In an interview to promote Black Noon, Ray Milan said he didn't care for performing in live theater. And um, actually, his wife made him wear a toupee for this part. It's, it's This toupee was first seen in Black Noon. So when you're watching Black Noon... That's the first time you're looking at whatever that hair piece is that he wore. Um, and in the interview, he called Black Noon a most unusual Western. And according to Milan, Andrew Fenaday came up with the idea while at a bookstore where he saw a book he thought was titled Black Noon. It ended up being a book on economics and had a totally different title. But he said Fenaday really dove deep into um, a lot of research while he was writing the script because that title just really struck him. And Fenaday was actually blocked on what to do aside from the title. Um, but then he was working on a movie called Chisholm. So Andrew Fenaday's career in Westerns uh, goes back far and wide. And um, I can't remember exactly all the things he worked on, but Chisholm was a big one. When he was writing uh, Black Noon, he had Yvette Momo in mind for the part of Deliverance. So he she was already cast before he even wrote the script. Uh, he just knew he wanted her in it. And then after Black Noon, Fenaday kind of moved away from writing films to becoming the director of development at Bean Crosby Productions. And, you know, Bean Crosby Productions also had their hand in a lot of TV movies as well. Uh, and Fenaday just passed away. He died earlier this year. So a couple of the TV movies he made that I think are interesting is, uh, so he worked a lot with Bronson. And I'm bringing this up because I know James is a big fan of Charles Bronson, as am I. And um, Fenaday did a TV movie called Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus with Charles Bronson, which I think was Charles Bronson's return to film after his wife died. Um, he wanted to do something kind of simple and sweet, and he ended up working on this film. And then Fenaday would use him later in um, a TV uh, movie called The Sea Wolf, which I think is based off a of Jack London novel i meant to write that down but um the sea was really good uh it stars charles bronson and christopher reeve and there was a lot of problems on set because christopher reeve is i think kind of a method actor and charles bronson's kind of the guy that he's like okay i look at the script and then i just say what's there 
And um, and they, I think they they did not get along. Like they didn't fight on set. But uh, I remember Chris Reeve later said in an interview that working with Charles Bronson could be very difficult because they were coming from two different thought processes on how to perform. But the film itself is really good, and they're great. Both of them are great in it. Chris Reeve especially is wonderful in that film. Bernard Kowalski, I think he mostly did episodic television, but he would go on. So just to give you some kind of context for what his career was like in this era, he did several TV movies between 1971 and 1972. He did Terror in the Sky, which I think is a B invasion movie from 71, Black Noon. Women in Chains, which was the number two highest rated TV movie of the 1972-73 season um, with Ida Lupino. Then he did Two for the Money. The New Healers, The Woman Hunter with Barbara Eden, those are all based off of Brian Clemens' story. Um, he did the thrillers in England. So those were all in between 71 and 72. Then he also did an episode of The Streets of San Francisco. And in 73, he directed with uh, Dirk Benedict. So this guy's two or three year run there was like really amazing. He worked a lot. And at the time Black Noon was in production, Yvette Momo was, uh, had begun writing stories. I think she had one produ- uh, published in Harper's Bazaar. And she was also running a textile business, so she was very busy. Also, Henry Silva jokingly told a reporter that um, uh, while he was promoting Black Noon, that he said he'd like to start a romantic comedy. And then he said, quote, if this gets out, it will ruin my image as a rat. Uh, So he's always having a good time, I think. Hank Warden, who we've been talking about, who played Joseph, uh, had appeared on screen since 1935. He'd been in several Westerns. Um, He'd worked with everyone from Tex Ritter to John Wayne by the time he showed up on Black Noon. Um, Thinnis had come off the cancellation of his short-lived series, The Psychiatrist, which I was going to talk a little bit about here, but uh, just for time. it was I have not only seen the pilot, but it's amazing. Steven Spielberg directed an episode of it, though. Um, he wasn't getting a lot of acting work, so he busied himself with screenwriting, and um, but nothing ever came to fruition. But one of the outlines um, he did caught the uh, interest of Warner Brothers. It was titled The Chief and the Jockey. But it never got made. And he also sold a script to the psychiatrist, but that was never produced either. And he composes music, I found out, which I didn't know. Dennis, as I said earlier, was one of the last surviving members of the original cast of General Hospital. He's actually in the very first episode. I think he might be the last person living that's in the photo, the famous photo from that episode. Um, Black Noon didn't do so well in the reviews. Uh, Charles Whitbeck of the Tampa Tribune writes... Quote, can audiences put up with such hokum and go the distance? He's referring to the end and whether or not the audience will wait to see how it unfolds. A writer for Florida Today said, quote, an attempt at a twist ending comes too late to do any good. Although the writer felt Silva was um, having a great time in the role of Moon. Variety called it fanciful malarkey, but generally thought it was okay, just not great. Jerry Beagle of the LA Times thought the film was quiet and served uh, was served with a good twist. And Low or Lou Cedrone of the Evening Sun in Baltimore said it was a roaring blue boar. I'm not sure what that means, but okay. And by the way, there's several kids in this movie, and one of them was played by Leif Garrett, in case you didn't. He played Toehead. There's like eight kids named Toehead in this i don't know why (laughs) but he was one of them and that's my background which is a lot more background than i normally have but um that's black noon so just real quickly i think we all sort of enjoyed the movie but didn't love it is that correct like a hesitant recommendation i i give i give it a stronger than hesitant i i think i think if you if you can dive into it and catch the groove of it it's a fun 70 minutes but i don't think it's it's no like world breaker it's it's not it's not like escape which I recommend you watch eight times before the day is done, but it's worth a viewing. And James, you, you think people should see it? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, I think my criticisms of it are are more frustration than anything else. You know, it's not never trying to put anything down. It's just a case of, 
it could have done some very obvious things, I think, to mm. make it far more uh, effective. Mm. But when it does work, you know, it's, uh, I would say, I would go as far as say the last 20 minutes is worth it. It's worth watching. Mm. It's worth watching for the last 20 minutes. So, yeah, I do give it a slightly more than a hesitant okay. recommendation. I, I recommend it just to hear Lynn Loring sound like Chewbacca for like three minutes straight because it's amazing. Uh, so, okay, so let's go into our next movie, which is a real odd one that I'm super excited to talk about. It is called Into the Badlands. He came from the depths of hell to wreak havoc on all who crossed his path. And he's meaner than an acre of snakes. Y'all never seen a dead man before? You, Marshal? I'm a bounty man. And I just brung home the fox. Did someone come by last night after William left? A man with a cart. Did he? Tell me what he wants. There's nothing out there! Just a screech, screech, screeching at the door. Bruce Dern. Ariel Hemingway, Dylan McDermott, Helen Hunt, Lisa Pelican, Into the Badlands. Do not have a Merrill that covers Into the Badlands, so I'm going to get all the names wrong, but I'm going to do my best. This one starts off, we meet uh, Bruce Dern. He's wandering through the Badlands of the Old West, and he is uh, a bounty hunter. And he is going after a um, a fella who he uh, and th this movie is filled with a lot of those great classic um, uh, old west like um, wanted po uh, posters that you always see in like sheriff's offices in, like um, uh, TV shows and and western movies and um, uh, Bruce Dern captures a uh, captures and kills a guy who's on one of these posters you know reward five hundred bucks and. Um, to sort of um, show what kind of character his character is, um, leaves the guy who he shot and killed his two daughters, like hiding in a cellar, um, which was which I missed the first time I watched it. When I saw it the second time, I was like, "Oh, Mr. Bruce Dern, don't do that." But he he takes this uh, outlaw um, into the nearest town, and while he's going in there, he meets up with a guy whose name I, I didn't write the character's name down. It's like McCorkin, something like that. It's Dermot. Oh, um, it's McComas. McComas, McComas, thank you. I'll write that down, McComas. It's McComas. I don't know why I didn't write it down. But it's McComas, who is played by Dermot Mull. I've never Dylan McDermott. Dylan McDermott. See, I didn't know his name at all. I thought it was Dermot Mulrooney. I don't know. So, so this is That's a... That's I get those... <laughs> I get those names mixed up all the time, even though they're clearly two different actors, and I can yeah. see them both in my head as two separate people. I get their names mixed up all the time. So, so, uh, so the bounty hunter runs into McComas, who is also on a wanted poster. McComas, uh, kind of like, what you got there? Oh, it's uh, you know an outlaw, and I caught him. And McComas doesn't doesn't scare the bounty hunter, but bounty hunter's like, yeah, I know who you are. And so McComas is riding into a nearby town, and he passes sort of a funeral. Um, procession with a lot of folks in, in carriages and a woman dressed all in black who gives him kind of a look and you can't really see who she is and she he kind of looks at her and he goes into this town and the first person he sees is Helen Hunt and um, she's playing a character um, who's sort of um, I didn't quite know I figured she was sort of um, <clears throat> pardon me lady of the night ish but she's really sweet about it 
and um, <laughs> and uh, her and and um, uh, um, uh, the, the the outlaw guy there, um, uh, they, <laughs> they 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 kind of hook up. There's it's I forgot to mention, folks. It's an anthology. So there are a lot of names. Um, so McComas and, and Helen Hunt's character, they hook up and they begin talking. And he has to get out of town. The sheriff knows he's in the area. So as he spends a, a lot of time sitting with her in this sort of a bar, saloon, um, talking with um, her. And they're kind of flirting and drinking. And it's intercut with these people arriving at this graveyard and setting up this grave site. Intercut with the sheriff, with the poster of, of, of the outlaw going, do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? Eventually, um, uh, Helen Hunt and her outlaw buddy go to go to go to bed together and they um they have a great time and and <laughs> they, do. they do they do and she's sort of like she you know he he meant to leave town but she kind of puts a bit of a a spell on him and when they start talking he realizes you know um maybe this is as good as it gets because she says basically i'm mad about you so oh, it, wah, 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 <laughs> come wah. on he's so much better than paul reiser oh my god <laughs> just run off with this man please so so what happens is the the, the this anthology tale is about how yeah this this outlaws with this woman who she has consumption she's not at all well and as the sheriff is sort of getting closer and closer to where he is and as we're seeing bits and more and more of the graveyard site being put together they decide they're going to run away together and it's an anthology, so I have to cut it off shortly. But suffice it to say, these two little kids, the two little douchebaggy kids, um, call out the outlaw. And so the sheriff goes after him as Helen Hunt is waiting in an alley with a horse. And it's it's just, I'll, I'll kind of leave it there. there. There might be a shootout, there might not be. It all leads to a big twist, sort of, in the end. But I'll leave it there. That's sort of the first tale, and I'll try to go through the others quickly. Um, the second one, the, the, the bounty hunter is sort of um, the linking uh, guy yeah. in these. So the next time, we, the second tale begins with him like at a, um, a stopover house in the middle of nowhere with a family who kind of feeds him, and he's telling inappropriate, scary stories to a little girl there. I knew if I showed my fright, the wolves would smell it too. Did you know them wolves? They smelled it out anyway. There ain't a man alive, even an old vagabond like yours truly, that don't have at least one thing deep down inside of them that they're scared to death of. Mr. Barston, with all due respect, I just wonder if this is the time to be telling such things to a child right before bed. It's okay, Mama. Mama, oh, it's only a tall tale. Anyway, there they were. Just a scritch, scritch, scritching at the door with their real long nails. They pushed them soft, big, wet noses against the door so as they could get my smell. All of a sudden, this grin come over all of their faces, and they showed me these big, long, sharp teeth of theirs and let me smell the blood on their mouth. Back quick on their haunches, muscles tense and coiled, ready to pounce. And the mom in this house is Mariel Hemingway, playing a character, I believe her name is Alma, I believe. And yeah. um, her, her husband is there, and their neighbor shows up, and their neighbors are relatively new in the Badlands, and they're from Boston. And the neighbor says, hey, I gotta hop on my horse and ride back to Boston real quick because my mom's sick or something like that. Could you check in on my wife? 
And Alma says, I will. The next day she goes and checks in on the wife. The wife's name is Sarah. And Sarah is sort of... Um, you know, the last the last movie had a bunch of people from New England coming to um, the Badlands. And this is sort of... She, Sarah's a bit sort of affected. And she's a bit... She talks about Schubert. And she, 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 she recites some Shelley. And Mariel Hemingway sits there with her Mariel Hemingway face saying, I only know the scripture. And stuff like that. And um, Sarah begins to get a bit uh, kind of crazy, sort of a mix of kind of insinuating that, that, that Alma and his her husband are having an affair, mixed with, there's something outside my house that wants to get me. And you realize that Sarah's having some sort of fever is coming over her, so Alma decides to stay the night. And the bulk of the tale is about these wolves, who may or may not be real, they may or may not be this, attacking the house, but is all the evil outside of the house? Might Sarah be... I'm just going to leave it hanging there. I'm going to leave that hanging there. But it's, it's basically Alma. The house is besieged. She has rifles and guns by these wolves. And Sarah might be a little bit... But I'll leave it hanging right there. Um, then the third and final tale is... Uh, follows the bounty hunter. As he has been hunting down a guy whose name is... Um, his first name is Red. Red Roundtree who's worth a, like a, a big outlaw worth yeah. a lot. And he ends up, he, he's so intent upon catching Red Roundtree that there's a sequence with him in a lean-to during a blizzard where he cuts his own toe off because it's been frostbitten, which I thought was a little disturbing and was surprising. Um, but he ends up catching Red Roundtree, who was making a very lovely scrambled egg breakfast. I don't know where he oh, got those eggs so from. I don't know where he got those, those like buzzard eggs or what those are. I don't know where he got those eggs from. I'm not going to ask. Um, but what ends up happening is the bounty hunter ends up killing Red and taking him to the local town where he needs to get, like, um, not, not, not an affidavit per se, but just something saying um, from the people in the town, hey, that's Red Roundtree, give this guy his reward. But when he arrives in the town, there are only three guys there, or there are four, I forget. Um, <laughs> yeah, I and they're, they're all screwball, and they're all, like, nuts. And one of them has, like, got these terrible teeth, and they keep insinuating that the guy in the wagon, the dead body in the way, is not red. Why isn't he red? Because why isn't he red round tree? Because he, um, and I was going to make a joke about he sh he's better dead than red, but I'm not going to say that. But he's not red round tree because um, red would come into town shooting in the air and going crazy. He wouldn't be on that wagon dead. That's not red. And the bounty hunter is getting confused by these guys who won't admit that that's red when it clearly is. And then they kind of sort of look like they're kind of maybe going to steal Red's body and, and the bounty hunter has to bring the body into this local saloon and there's a shootout and it's craziness and is that Red? Is Red really dead? Are these guys dead? What's going on? Is the bounty hunter dead? Are we all dead? I'll leave it hanging there into the Badlands. It's 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 something. It is something. It, it is. Uh, am I right again that this was a first time watch for you guys? Oh yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, first time for me. I saw it years ago when I first moved to Austin because um, it used to be on YouTube uh, and not a very good print. Um, the print we watched is it was on it's on DVD, which I forgot, but it's such a beautiful copy. But um, and I didn't know what to really make of the film, to be honest. I, I, it was so strange to me, but I w I'm still really taken with it. I mean, like it was so beautiful to look at, even in its like grungy upload. Um, this rewatch of it. It's so good. I, I, I don't know that I loved it, but I really liked it. I really liked how weird it was and surreal it was and different it was. And I loved um, the dialogue and I loved the actors. And 
Um, I really, really, really love the setting. I think of everything that the film has to offer. The setting to me is like so beautiful. I, I could just get lost in some of the camera work, which this was nominated for an Emmy for cinematography, by the way. And I'm not surprised. And um, also, and we'll talk about it later when we get into the nuts and bolts of the film. I want to talk about some of the subtext. I want to talk about what I think threads the three stories together. Um and the more I think about it, and I thought about this originally when I saw it, I remember, and I'm I'm fairly positive I'm I'm right uh, now anyway. So uh, anyway, I was really charmed by this, but it is a really bizarre film, and um, I'm not real sure what everybody else is going to think of it. So why don't we start with Dan this time? Dan, what did you think of Into the Badlands? I will say it is a gorgeous looking film. The cinematography is is wonderful, and. Um, during some of the weaker moments, I think it, it, it kind of keeps you, you folks. And the acting does, too. I think the acting is really... I mean, in the third segment, it's Bruce Dern being crazy and a bunch of other guys being crazier than Bruce Dern, which means, like, that's super crazy. Um, but but the acting most of the other uh, <laughs> uh, sequences is, is, is pretty... Is, is really quite good. I will say... When I first watched this, I knew nothing about it. If if you rec- if you say Dan, watch this film. The first thing I do is say yes, ma'am, and I apologize in case I've <laughs> said that too loudly. Um, and then I watch the film, and I don't look it up. I don't. I didn't even know this was a USA film until you said it earlier in this episode. I had no concept of when this aired. And so I'm watching the film the first time, and I'm watching Bruce Dern, and then McComas, Mc, 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 the the outlaw guy, shows up, and Helen Hunt is there, and I was watching it thinking. I love I love the fact that they're spending so much time with these characters, and then um, and this is actually going to sound similar to what I said about watching um, uh, Black Noon for the second time. But as I was watching this for the first time, we get the sequence where he meets up with the sheriff, and there's like a horse in the alleyway, and I had to get up. I was I think I may have been watching it while I was working. Don't tell the people I work with; they'll be pissed. But I had to. I had to do something work-wise and I missed like two or three minutes and suddenly like Mariel Hemingway was in bed with a redhead. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what's going on? What happened to Helen Hunt? And then it wasn't until like 40 minutes in that I thought, is this an anthology? And I'm an idiot. I know that you're saying you really damn, you really said, but that's what happened the first time I watched it is I didn't realize it was an anthology. I thought they were just spending a lot of time with the outlaw and Helen Hunt. And then suddenly when it became another story, I was like, oh, this. And so I had to watch it again to put myself in an anthology frame of mind because I thought it was sort of building. I, I thought all their time together was building towards something rather than the twist. And um, it's a beautiful film to look at. Bruce Dern is just crazy. I could watch him being crazy like that all day. I think the acting is 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 fine. The the one the the one thing with it that I don't know if it lets me down. I I was on. um. On, on, on my my podcast, Adventure Super Train, I asked I, I I forget I think I asked uh, Tim Turner who was on there talking Nero Wolf with me is a is like a is like an episode of Columbo a bad episode if you watch the entire episode enjoy it and then the ending stinks and the thing with Into the Badlands is that all three of the endings while they had their charms. I didn't think were very good. Yeah. And all three of the endings, they almost seem to be going out of their way. Now, like the the first one, the ending of the first one is one of those endings where it's like, like the, the filmmakers are almost saying, huh? What, what do you think of that? Huh? You know, could you believe that? Isn't that crazy? And you're sitting there thinking, I've seen this like a hundred times. I knew that was going to happen from the beginning. And then the second one ends with a sort of ending where it's, it's, 
I don't think it's anything quite like I've ever seen in an anthology film. I guess we can talk about it, uh, but it's like you don't really see an ending like that. And then the third ending is fun, but it's also sort of it's so the movie is so weird at that point that it's kind of just doing anything. And so it's such it's such a weird film because I enjoyed I, I watched it three times. I, I really quite enjoyed it. But at the end of every story, it lost me and then had to kind of pick me up again, which is kind of what anthologies do. But generally sort of the high of a good ending will drive you on to the next one. Yeah. Whereas this one, it was just weird because it really felt like the writers were like trying not to, we don't want to go too over the top. You know, we don't want uh, folks to think of us, we want to step into this and be a little <laughs> more adult, a little more. And, and, and in the end, I think they, the, the problem with it is I think it's a, it's, I think it's quite a good anthology film, but all three endings of the tales are sort of like, eh. So I don't know whether that makes it a good film or not i that this i i don't know yeah you know i think i agree with you about the endings and it occurred to me i said we this is one of the stranger movies we've done but i'm thinking back when we had eric on the show we talked about another day that shannon doherty movie which was also a usa original that came out almost a decade later and that one was really weird too right so they were pretty adventurous with their films they also did the we covered one of their other films um the china lake murders oh sure with michael parks Yeah, so they 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 are interesting. Their output was really cool. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's just the thought I had. So James, what did you think of Into the Badlands? Uh, I started out quite liking it, and I ended up fucking loving it. Right? I, I was like, oh, <laughs> so thankful that you showed me. So I'd never heard of this film before, and I thought it was. I really, 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 really loved this film. And by the end, yeah, thinking this has really kind of won, won me over. You know, I think, I think, but at the same time. All your criticisms of it, both yours and Daniel's, are kind of valid. You know, I, do, I, I know exactly what you mean about the endings to each of the tales. The, uh, the way I would say this is it's a mood piece mm. rather than a, than a thriller, right? And I think you have to kind of get with the kind of, if you're on the same plane as the mood that it's trying to achieve, I think it's, a, it's almost a kind of meditative, kind of mournful, kind of almost dreamscape mm. type, type film, really. And so I can see why it would be strange. I, I, don't, I have no idea, you, you'll know better than me, how this would have played on a tele, to, a, to a television audience. But I, I, I have to say, I thought it was really good. I, I thought it had a lot of heart to it. I, I liked the the, the, um, the pairing of Dylan McDermott and Helen Hunt. I thought it was really nice, actually. Yeah. Almost kind of, there's a, a, moving, a moving kind of element of it. Right? They, they, they make a really nice couple. You know, she's dying and you know, well, she's not very well or whatever it is. And, and I think... Uh, there's something really kind of nice, lo- lo- lovely about the way that they, they come together because they're two sort of forgotten actors as well. They, they, they both could have been, well, they were big stars, but they both could have been even bigger than they ended up being. So seeing them at their kind of like at their, at their best looking and sexiest, you know, you know, playing off each other, you get the sense that they really like each other. But then in the second segment with uh, Marilyn Hemingway, I really enjoyed very, very, very much, um, just gets kind of more more twisted and, and, and more strange. And then obviously by the time of the third episode <laughs> with uh, Bruce, I mean, it's just off there. <laughs> it's just let, let's just let it all go now. Right. It's just, it's completely, it's, it's gone completely off the, uh, off the, off the wall by that stage. And I just thought it was terrific. You know, I really, I really enjoyed it. Maybe again, that probably says more about me, you know, maybe I've got, maybe I've got really shitty taste, but I think <laughs> when you saw <laughs> anthologies that, there is something strange about anthologies. Like they, they know the short films, 
and they're not a feature film. And so like every yes. 20 minutes or 30 minutes, however long the, the, the episode lasts, it kind of has to slump again, right? It reaches a crescendo and it has to slump and start again. So in a normal 90-minute thriller or a normal 90-minute narrative film, when you're 30 minutes from the end, you're just about to reach the climax. Whereas in an anthology film, when you're 30 minutes from the end, you're just starting again. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. like it is a strange narrative kind of trajectory you go through. Right. It's a, a strange emotions. And I don't think any anthology has ever has ever really had that good of a reviews and ever been all that popular. But I have to say, I really like them. And one thing that's always good about anthologies is, you know, if you if you're not liking this episode, you know, there's, there's another one along in a minute. Right. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. You know, stuff. But I have to say, I, I, I want to say thanks for pointing this film in my direction, because uh, I, I thought I thought it was terrific. You know, I really did. Oh, good. I'm so happy. That's my goal is to turn people <laughs> on to these TV movies. And because and, then once people see movies that they really like, they get curious about other movies. And maybe when we get to the background uh, off the top of my head, I can talk a little bit about the USA Network and what they were doing. Um, because they do have a really, you might like their films in general, because I think they did do things that were different than the networks. And we'll talk a little bit about the criticisms too. So I don't know what the audience thought per se. I, I researched this movie as much as I could. I couldn't find a lot, but I will, I do have some cr uh, critics that spoke about the film. Um, and I'll tell you what they said, but, um, yeah, it's, it's such an oddball movie, but, um, uh, I want to talk about how I see it real quick mm -hmm. and then, and then. Maybe sure. we could kind of go on to it. But so so the thing about each segment is that they're talking about paradise in it. And they use the word paradise at the end, actually. So so the couple at the beginning, um, Dylan McDermott and Helen Hunt, he's talking about this place he wants to go to where the, the water's so blue that it's green and it's so beautiful. And there's this and there's that, right? And they can never get there, as we find out. You swear? Yeah, it's true. That's just a fellow who told me within my life. Heaven on earth, he said. And we can really go there. Mexican ocean, the water's so blue. Mm. It's green, he said. And big fish. So tasty, and when they jump from the sea to the pan. And yellow parrot. Just like lullabies every night for you sleep. On sand like cinnamon. <laughs> oh, God, Nicholas, I love you. I do. I haven't said that and meant it since I was 14 years old. It's going to happen for us, I swear. I swear it. Heaven on earth. Then go. Right now, before it all goes away. You get your horse and you meet me in the alley. And then we've got this, uh, these two women, which this is probably my favorite segment because I'm madly in love with Lisa Pelican, the redhead in this. Uh, she's so hauntingly beautiful to me. And she talks about the story about, uh, about the woman that sees the tree after she's been out into the frontier oh, yes. yeah. and that she hugged the tree, right? Like, cause she'd seen this beautiful greenery that she hadn't seen before. And, um, and then she's talking about this form of paradise in her mind or how, what she sees paradise as. And then in the third segment, when Bruce Stern is taking uh, red round tree to that town, he sees like the church and the, and the, whatever the ghost town e looking place he turns into. And he says the word paradise. And for me, what the movie is about, it's about, how the American West was building up this idea of the quote-unquote American dream, but it was already gone before it was even created. So these are people who are in the frontier at the time that it was being built. So in the second story, Muriel Hemingway tells the story about her why how they got there, and that's oh, because yes. her husband was supposed to work with them building the railroad, right? And then he got hoodwinked, and then they just ended up out in the middle of nowhere. Tell me the truth, Alma. Are you not lonely? 
Yes, sometimes. What do you miss? What do you miss the most? My family, I guess. My father had a farm. It wasn't much of a place. Crop was never any good, but we got by. Why'd you leave? I imagine it was John. And I never said no. Margaret was a baby, and then the men came from the railroad. Promised us paradise. Free land and good weather. I never knew men to lie like that till then. Those men lied with our lives. They lost everything, and but they came out because they had a dream. And McDermott had a dream to head to this place and where he when he got there, there would be freedom for him, right? And and for Dern it was the money, right? The the paradise was the money more than anything. And yet none of them could reach these dreams. And so I think it's interesting because the filmmaker, Sam Pillsbury, is uh, basically considered a New Zealand filmmaker, but he's from America. He lived in America for like 14 years and he moved to New Zealand and then he came back to America and um, now he lives here. But uh, I always think movies about America made by foreign filmmakers are like the best movies about America ever because they strip away a lot of the facade of things instead of building up on them. And so to me, what I think the film is saying is uh, it's critiquing these things about that we chase and we look for that we're never going to get them. And um, and that the frontier, this idea of what the frontier was and how we built up Manifest Destiny and, and all this stuff about building up America in the West and expanding was all horseshit, right? Because these people are suffering to do this. Like, like we've built, we've built this country on the backs of slaves. And then outside of that, on the backs of these people that have really had to struggle for us to get those beaches and get those trees and, and get the money. Right. So, so to me, the movie is actually making a serious commentary on something about America. Um, and I thought that when I first saw it, but at the time, I don't think I was able to refine my opinion enough on it. The second time, because I had that in the back of my mind, it grew into a, a thing in my head that now I can't believe that the filmmaker had any other thoughts in mind when he made it. Of course, he probably did. But in my mind, that's what he was thinking. So so for me, the subtext of Into the Badlands is where the heart of the film is, because it's actually providing pretty harsh commentary about something, but it's doing it through like genre filmmaking, which is my favorite kind of commentary, because you can watch it for what it is, which is this really weird, surreal kind of moody film. But then you can also look at it as the layers, right, that are there for you. So um, so that's why I love that kind of filmmaking. But anyway, that's what I thought about how the three <laughs> stories connect. Did you guys think about like connecting the three stories? Either one of you? Uh, personally, no, I didn't think of it like that. But that that's that's really, really good. I, I've, I've seen the film once. Right. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I am going to watch this film again and I will definitely watch it with, with your analysis in mind. That seems to make a lot of sense there. And it chimes again with what I was saying earlier about the uh, the hardship that people face spreading west and moving to the kind of in, in, into into America and the birth of America. And, the, you know, we don't often think of uh, Westerns as stories about people about working classes or about you know about class mm -hmm. right uh, that and 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 i think what you said there amanda really kind of home right really, really that, that really chimes with 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 my thoughts around the, the western and and uh, and class and opportunity and, and all all the things that are wrapped up in people leaving their their you know where they were born 
to move to another place with with the um, sense of opportunity, right? Trying to make their life better for them for themselves or for their families or uh, or, 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 or for whoever. And sometimes, as you say, with in, in the case of slaves, you talk about people who are kind of forcibly uh, replaced from a from, from a place and and, and and brought over to build a country, and other people who are just you know either the original settlers who've, and people who've descendants of those who've been there for a, you know hundreds of years who then spread west in these very very difficult sometimes heart-wrenching circumstances if you read the actual stories and um especially the second story here with the lisa pelican character and um uh, Marrow hemingway it's it's so um evocative of the hardship that people had i think living li- living in the old west that re- your analysis there really helps actually I think that really, um, really, really, really guides a way of thinking about this film. So it's beyond just the kind of daftness, the silliness of it, right? You know, because you've got uh, Bruce Stern having a lot of fun in this film, and <laughs> you, you can take it on. On that, that, I think that's, I think that's one of the reasons why, why, why I responded so well to it when I said that I started out liking it. It's a western. It looks good. It looks fantastic. Actually, it's a bit silly. It's going to be fun. And then, you know, it just kind of dragged me deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was getting really kind of attached to some of these characters, even with the 20-minute screen time that they have. Um, so what you say there is really quite, um, you know, astute. It, it, it rings true. Yeah, it rings true. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, the, the Pelican uh, character in particular is really striking to me because I think that that's almost commentary that could lead up to the 90s about what happens. It's like the yellow wallpaper, which I don't know if you guys have read that novella, but the yellow wallpaper is about a woman who I think loses a baby in like childbirth. And the way it's, I think it was written in like the early 1900s. And the way they deal with her grief and depression is that they basically make her, uh, they isolate her from everybody else and they bring her to this house and she's basically left her own accord forever and she starts seeing things in the wallpaper and for me Lisa Pelican is like just an adaptation of that although this was at adapted from an actual story but um but it feels like it's built off that so like so like the the idea that her husband's having an affair we have no indication that that was actually ever real we never see Meryl Hemingway react in a way that makes you think that they were having an affair she's basically in that house all day by herself and it drives her insane literally insane to the point where she's manifesting these creatures right that means something to mm. her and it's very profound as a woman to watch that kind of stuff because i write a lot about feminism in um tv movies and stuff and this movie really nails it it's very tragic because this happened to a lot of women all over the place all through like a century of this and so like so like i think it's really accurately in metaphor kind of taking the emotion of what it's like to be left like that in a house with just your mind and what happens to you and that happened to a lot of women right who who were expected not to work and things like that so so the second segment is really poignant to me even though I agree with Dan the ending is kind of anticlimactic like I kept waiting for like a werewolf you know what I mean and and Yeah, and when she shoots the first dog, I thought for sure it was going to turn into a person mm-hmm. and be like one of their husbands or something. And then that never comes to be. And so, and then when it kind of ends, it just kind of ends. And then, but you know, but I think what it's saying uh, over the other two in particular for me uh, is has a lot of depth to it. And so, so I can kind of excuse that ending. The first one was was a little bit more complicated for me to figure out, but um, um, it's it's good. But I think the ending. I, I don't mind the way the second one ends because I think that the story is just, 
I don't know, it just touches me in a different way. But the first one, though, I really enjoyed, um, mostly when Dylan McDermott's in the bathtub. But, like, <laughs> the rest of it's actually really good. So, <laughs> but, like, um, but the ending there was a little more confusing to me. I don't know. It just didn't wrap it up as well as I thought it could have. But anyway, the point is, is that I think that this movie's doing a lot of different things. Yeah. Whether it's successful at it completely is remains to be seen. I, that's based on how you view it. But I think it's just, it's there. And anyway, Dan, what were you going to say? I know um... I asked the question of both of you. <laughs> um... I think I think what you said is fantastic, um, and I I think my my thing is that I I spent the times like I should have known that it was an anthology from the writer credit at the beginning because the, the I right. I saw that writer because it only has one director but the writer credit is written by someone A N D someone A N D someone and in the writers guild stuff in the writers guild rules and ampersand means teams and means that each one of those persons each one of those people like did a completely different draft on their own or wrote a completely different portion on their own so what that means is that those three names each one of them wrote one of the segments and it didn't occur to me because they didn't have a based upon the based upon the stories is like hidden in the closing credits so when I saw that credit and I thought, okay, three people who have all written separately, who aren't a team, this can't be good because usually that's a problem. That's usually a problem <laughs> Yeah. when you see that. Not, not, but I didn't realize, and I should have, of course, it's one director, it's an anthology film, and each person had a different tale. And oddly enough, I think the, 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 it was two guys and a woman, and the woman, I believe, wrote the second one. So, which makes sense. Yes. Um, and I, I'd like to, I mean, the thing about the ending of the second one, basically the ending of the second one is Mariel Hemingway's character sort of kills the demons and stops the fever for a while. It looks like Sarah is actually a bit nuts as they're leaving, but sort of like the wolves have disappeared and she's taking her away from that house, presumably to her house, um, where there will be more people. And it's said it's like a way station or a rest stop for people passing by. The the thing with Sarah and that, Sarah and Alma, is like Alma has the – it's funny because Alma references scripture several times. But she's also the one who gets sort of legitimately angry when she does have the moment where she says, the men told my husband he could work on trains and he'd make more money than he'd ever made in his life. And I've never seen such lying men. And just the way she says it, you know, it's like – and so, you know, like she's she, she's got her scripture, but she also is really pissed off at that. Whereas Sarah has a bit more of a hoo hoo hoo, I'm going cuckoo here kind of thing. <laughs> and also there's the thing where you don't you don't feel like Alma or I didn't feel like Alma could get back to possibly couldn't leave the Badlands. And let me tell you, if you're going to move to the middle of nowhere, don't pick the good lands or the decent lands. Don't go to the bad lands. I think you know you're going to get screwed. But but <laughs> I think the thing with Sarah is the fact that there, there is sort of, to me, the out where like the husband is like, I have to go back to Boston. So please take care of my wife. So if he can go back to Boston, then that means maybe that she doesn't have to live here all the time. Whereas with Alma, I get the feeling that she's stuck here. This is what they have. Yeah. But there's a feeling with Sarah that that maybe if she can get better after this fever, and I don't know if the fever is insanity or it's an actual sickness uh, that came upon her for, for some reason, she might be able to maybe when the if the mom dies, she'll leave him a beautiful like you know mansion somewhere in Boston, 
and they could head on back and be a mass hole for the rest of their lives. That'd be fantastic. They wouldn't have to live in the Badlands. <laughs> but it's 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 one of those movies where, like I told you, I was arguing with myself about whether or not an anthology works when I don't think the endings work. Because as, as you said, James, it's about you build to a point and then the point has to be one where you go, hopefully one where you go, yeah, and then you want to see what's next. But But if you get like, Three in a row where the endings are like, okay, is that is that a good? Maybe it's a bad anthology, but a good movie, I guess. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm because I love anthology films, and I've always sort of struggling in my mind with with sort of the way they work. And this one just seems to be kind of doing its own thing, which I really like. And I feel like if I watched it again, and to be honest, that probably won't be in the next few days. Uh, if I watch it again. <laughs> I'd love I'd love to watch it with what you guys have said about it and sort of look at it from that point of view rather than sort of my point of view, which I think is a bit um, uh, not ignorant, but sort of like, Dan, open your mind up a little bit. Stop. Stop looking for the ending and take the journey, because with mm-hmm. anthologies, no. you get that where you look for the ending sometimes rather than the journey. Yeah, I well, that I'll agree with. But I mean, like, it's your own subjective opinion. You know, you go into this movie with your own preconceived notions and, and maybe in a way it shoots itself in the foot by being an anthology because we've come to expect on TV anyway. Um, this isn't like Trilogy of Terror or Dead of Night or the very limited amount of made-for-TV anthologies that exist. Because if it was, then the third story would be a real, would be much more explosive, I think, yes. than it ended up being. Although it's the most action-packed of the three, I guess, but it's not necessarily the kind of as memorable as something like the Zuni fetish yes. doll or Bobby. It's just more weird. And s- it's just more weird in the end than anything. Yeah. I mean, it's fun. I think it's fun because Bruce Dern makes it really <laughs> fun. But like for me, that portion might be the weakest segment because although I like him as the narrator, mm-hmm. it's, and I love the kind of weekend at Bernie's idea of like the body, <laughs> like being there was like really fun and the <laughs> actor was great, you know, but like, and how the body decomposes mm-hmm. and stuff. It was interesting, but I think that maybe the first two stories were so built off like an emotional impact rather than maybe a crescendo of action that it carried more weight for me. But I think, I mean, I I can't argue with you that the endings are a weak point. I think it's just maybe I saw the subtext and James understood it as like a real mood piece. Yes. Like, um, almost like, I don't know, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like, it feels like you saw it more as a a piece of art. Mm. Yeah, almost. Then I think we did right. So, so that's just how you watch films. Yeah. It's fine. Would it know? would it have been better if if the the third segment had maybe featured those guys, the one with that really goofy teeth too? Um, but but if it it if it had been more like um uh, like if if maybe he thought Red Roundtree was still alive, like maybe Red was be talking to him as you know mm. was going along and saying stuff like, why do you do this? You know, questioning him about what he's doing as he's also trying to save his body as it were. I, I don't know. I just try to make it more like the first two. I almost forgot to mention another thing about, about Bruce Stern's character that also ties into the frontier aspect is that we see him in dream sequences watching all these horses. And I kind of think when he, yes. came, he looks very normal in those sequences. So I think before he became a bounty hunter, he was living as this regular person life. And then something about the West uh, just corrupted him in a way. I don't want to say corrupt because there's nothing wrong with being a bounty hunter, but like the way he does it mm-hmm. in this very cold-blooded way, he's a different person than what we sell yes. in the dreams, you know? So I think that's also commenting on it. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you could have done a lot of different things with the, maybe the last segment. Um, but it's just, it's just, I mean, compared to the first two, it's just, it's not the one 
that I will think about the most. I think there's an element, though, where we've got this uh, these genre expectations where it's a Western. So we're, we have certain whole host of expectations there. We kind of get the sense it's going to be a horror Western. If you I'm assuming it was like advertised as a horror Western and stuff or a, or a kind of mm-hmm. Western, weird Western going forward. So you, you're expect, you've got horror expectations there. And if you knew it was an anthology, you've got expectations for what you want from an anthology. And I think I was expecting, knowing all of those things going into this, for it to do certain things, mm-hmm. to do certain, th- to, to hit the hit the Western you know, marks, uh, do certain things with its horror um, conventions, and then with the anthology elements of it, to reach a crescendo every half an hour. But the fact that it didn't is what drew me in, I think. It kind mm-hmm. of like confounded the expectations I would have. You're right, it's kind of... Each individual segment doesn't really reach the kind of explosive climax that we might expect from both horror, westerns, and anthology, anthologies in general. And the fact that, I don't know, the, the fact that that middle section ended without them being ripped to, to death by werewolves or, or whatever it's hinting yeah. that it might go to. Well, I really, I just really liked it. I don't, I'm not saying it was the right ending. I can definitely understand why people would react against it and why you might react against it but the very fact that it confounded my expectations uh was uh what really surprised me about it and that's why i said that i i I liked it more and more as it was as it was going on you know i thought i knew where it was going and it it didn't go where i thought it was going to go so that was that was that was was the thing that really made me love it and by the end i was i was completely dragged along I think I, I, I just occurs to me then that the second segment actually has the best twist because you expect werewolves, so you expect something else, but the ending of the second yeah. segment is spoiler: the gals got away, the the women made it yeah. out. They they and yeah. you don't ex, you don't expect that at all. You expect so, yeah. I I expected I expected Sarah to kill Alma or something like that. I didn't expect it's, it. To, it's, oh, right. exactly, yeah, exactly, or, or or vice versa, or whatever. And then he really it goes really close to to. to to doing something like that, but then to have her kind of take care of her at the end of that segment, yes, you know, really, really, as you say, that that is the that is the twist, you know. Yeah, and I guess if you're if you're stuck in a cabin in the Badlands in the middle of nowhere, I would like Mariel Hemingway to um, assist me if I had fever. That's my request. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting relationship because Lisa Pelican's character is clearly accusatory and then a little snobby with her too. Mm-hmm. And yet they have this kind of companionship that they form while they're kind of stranded together where they get into the bed together and they share these stories about their lives. And like um, particularly Alma, the Meryl Hemingway character, get really opens up to her, yes. even though she's just been accused of like a, something that she I don't think did. And so like it's a very poignant kind of film. And I guess the more I think about it, the more I think it probably does have the right ending, because in the end, Alma is able to take care of this woman, despite her almost axing her to death, accusing her of sleeping with her husband, being really horrible to her sometimes. And and yet she is there for her, despite everything. And so in, in a way, that's like the perfect ending, because it's a it's about two women stuck in this really crappy situation and and they're still bonded by the loneliness and the isolation and the loss you know what i mean and so it's like it's like it brings them together despite all their differences you know and and they beat they the whatever those demons of the badlands are they they defeat the demons 
if the demons are the wolves or whatever gets inside Sarah because of the fever, they are able to defeat them. Actually, maybe that would have been better as a final segment. I know they couldn't have done it like that, but as a middle segment, I I, I do like it. But it's I, I almost wonder if that the ending should have been these two women defeated the demons that are plaguing everyone else in the Badlands. Like the ending being more triumphant, like we made it, we're going to be okay. Rather than, we made it, we're going to be okay, here's Bruce Dern acting like a screwball for another half hour. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it does change tone for sure. I think that middle section as well, it's completely the opposite, isn't it, of, the, of that binary you were talking about for, for Black Black Noon, mm-hmm. you know, where, where yeah. you've got this, you know, maybe way too simplistic relationship between, or depiction of two different women, whereas you've got in um, Into the Badlands, Really very subtle, actually. As you say, you know, they, they, they care for each other and they fight and then they eventually care for each other. Sorry, they, they, the, the one of them's accusing the other. Then they're bonding. Then, they, then they're fighting each other. And then at the end, one of them taking care of the other one or, or at the very least temporarily. You know, that's such, it's really actually quite complex. And, and as, as is the connection between Helen Hunt and, and Dylan McDermott. I mean, that, that, in some respects, I think that's the weakest segment, but I, I still really like it. But they, they do look like they've got a real connection. They don't, the filmmakers and the writers don't throw in bullshit ways of connecting these characters. Yes, yes, yeah. they, they, they make them like each other because there's a mutual attraction and they've just talked to each other. You get the sense that they've just spent the afternoon drinking and talking to each other all afternoon, right? And getting to know each other. And that's, do you know, do you know what I mean? There's the, yes. that, that oh, yeah. is unusual in movies. Usually you have to have some, you know, bullshit concoction that makes them, you know, fancy each other straight away. So we don't have to have, you know, hours of, of, of them, you know, falling for each other. Whereas in this film, you get the sense of that they, they've, they've spent the time talking to each other and the, the attraction feels genuine to me, particularly mm-hmm. in that first thing. Well, they both had, again, like Alma and Sarah, they're both coming from difficult places as well. Like yeah. he's running from a death sentence, basically, and she's dying. And she also, I think she's a bar wench. I don't know that she's a prostitute. Like, I'm confused by that myself. But yes, I like think a Miss when, Kitty when I originally, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it's hard to tell, but like um but her life is is hard, right? And and it's going to be very short. And then I think to me, these are two characters that he even says it like I ha- I changed my plans because I've met you. Yes. Like both of them were on a certain trajectory, I think, that had them by themselves, right? And that they were going to do what they needed to do to, to get as far as they could, particularly with Helen Hunt. And yet here uh, randomly you meet somebody out of the blue and then all of a sudden something blossoms out of it and that's her name blossom so maybe that's why <laughs> um instantly right and so and then and when you watch the scene where they're talking at the in the saloon the the whiskey bottle slowly goes down yes. if you watch the continuity of the it's amazing and then they get they're at the bottom of the bottle at the before they go upstairs right and it's it's so you can tell they spent a lot of time together because they've been going through this entire bottle of whiskey but I agree that the chemistry between them, it's its really beautifully done and it's very sweet too. It doesn't feel like, like they have sex and that's great and I'm super into it, but like it's not about the sex. It's like, it's like they're attracted to each other, but they're actually two people that had expected to be alone. That's my interpretation and, and somehow found each other out of the blue. And now there's this new future for them all of a sudden mm-hmm. and, and all in one day, right? Because it's still daylight yeah. out by the time he leaves to try to 
escape. And the romance, and I love romance. The romance aspect of it is very, I really, really liked the romance aspect of it, that them sitting around just drinking and stuff. It made me feel really like giggly. You know, I liked it. Like, like I said before, I realized it was an anthology. I was completely caught up in them being together. Like when she gets up and he's, you know, she starts coughing. He's like, Oh, you got consumption. I was like, Oh no, where is this going? And then all of a sudden when it became an anthology, I was like, Oh shit, I just watched that wrong. I was expecting (laughs) to see them for 90 (laughs) minutes and their story is over. The more I think about it, I would like to watch it again because I I really think I like all three segments. It was just my, my expectations of the way anthologies work um, stymied me. And Mm -hmm. oh, oh, I just realized too, when we're talking the second segment, I know we've been talking about that one a lot, but I kept thinking of, and forgive me, this is going to be pretty she-she, but I kept thinking of Ingmar Bergman films, something like Persona or Hour of the Wolf even. I'm so happy you said that because somebody, one of the critics brought that up and I was going to ask you about Ingmar Bergman and your thoughts on that. So go. Thank you. Oh, that's, I mean, I I thought it was a mix of like, like the scene. There's a lot of um, sort of persona in the way the women are are working with one, uh, are are with one another, like especially the scene where they're just like sort of casually in bed right next to each other talking. I thought of Hour of the Wolf 2, which is basically, not Hour of the Wolf 2, Hour of the Wolf 2. This time it's personal. Look, look what happened to Hour <laughs> of the Wolf. That's the TV TV sequel to to, uh, to Hour of the Wolf. But Hour of the Wolf is basically Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman in the cabin in the middle of nowhere at the Hour of the Wolf hmm. when everything goes crazy. And I've seen that. I've, I actually saw Persona and Hour of the Wolf on the on the big screen a few years ago in a double feature, and that's an evening of film. I mean, granted, I also saw Night at the Opera and Day at the Races, the Marx Brothers movie, like a month after that. That was probably more fun, but Persona and Hour of the Wolf are something to see. And there's something there's something about the way the women are written, the way they're shot. In the, I mean, because one of Bergman's things is just the the um, just the human face, just lingering mm-hmm. and, and just like like one of my all-time favorite films is Winter Light, his film Winter Light. And that has a couple long sequences on it in it where like a character will just stare at the camera and just like tell a story. And it's just it's so po- just looking at the face as they're telling the story. And that second segment has to me has a lot of that in it. And plus the fact that they're in a cabin, they're in the middle of nowhere, there's some sort of supernatural juju craziness going on outside that's going to attack them is is very much, um, is very Hour of the Wolfie to me. And I, I will say, Hour of the Wolf, if you ever see it in the theater, you will have one of the strangest minutes of cinema in your life because there's a moment in the movie where Max von Sydow says to Liv Ullman's character something like, do you realize how long one minute is? And he sets a timer. And he hits the timer, and they just sit there for one minute, silent. And I was in a crowd at the New Beverly uh, in, in Los Angeles, completely packed crowd. And for one, the longest minute of my life, no one made a sound. And we all just <laughs> sat there looking at the two actors and the clock just for – you wouldn't believe how long a minute can be. <laughs> And something like that. Yeah. But you get, and, and to me, that that's what I kept thinking when I saw the women together. I thought it was very Bergman-esque because he loves Autumn Sonata, Cries and Whispers. He loves his, um, uh, the silence. Uh, he loves his, um, uh, the having the two, these two great actresses sort of come up against each other and the, the, the beauty of their faces and the, the contours of that. I always thought like Mariel Hemingway is beautiful, but she has a slightly strange looking face. 
like a, the structure of it or something. I don't know. It's like kind of like a, well, it's, a square or something. It's square. Yes. It's square, but she's stunning. Yeah. She's stunning. And she's really talented. Although there is one line that she delivers really poorly at the beginning. I don't know what's inside your head today, Alma. You sure you don't want me to ride over there tomorrow looking on Sarah? No, John, it's my place to go. That man just makes me feel so queerly. He spoke queerly to me oh, yes. or something. And you're like, <laughs> Muriel, come on. <laughs> What are you doing to me? But then, but then she, then she shows up with Lisa Pelican, and it's like all bets are off. Yeah. And and so Lisa Pelican, I know best because she was in Jennifer, that movie oh, wow. where she yeah. could control snakes. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? She starred in that. But I'm so taken with her, and so I think Meryl Hemingway possesses a strongness because she has kind of a square jaw, and, and she looks like somebody you'd see, like. In the frontier times, like, she aptly captures the physical beauty of, like, the handsome woman in that way. But, like, Lisa Pelican has a very haunted quality that, and I've already said that, but, like, that I'm just really drawn to. So they're, again, like, binaries, right? They're two. One's really strong, one's really soft, you know? And it's it's just really fascinating to me. I think the casting of the film was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that struck me, yeah, well, the, one, the, the, you cast absolutely correctly. And I think I said this to you on, um, when, when uh, I'm relatively new to T. TV movies, or certainly um, not not as experienced as you guys, is how seriously the actors seem to take this stuff. And this this is in no way Bruce Dern's. You know, he's a, he's a big character actor and a big star. If you like particular types of films, obviously he's got a massively brilliant Western heritage. You know, he's in The Cowboys, Will Penny, Hang 'Em High, uh, eventually Hateful Eight, and uh, and he's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. And he takes this film as seriously. And uh, as I've seen him take any other role, really. And I think the actors performing in this, they aren't, they're not playing this as if it's in any way lesser than any other performance they, they would ever give. And that's backed up, I think, by the, the, the talent behind the camera as well. You, you, you said that, that, that he was nominated for an award for the cinematography. The production values are as good as anything that was in a theatrical movie of the early 1990s in, 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 in this film. You know, I mean, they weren't making many westerns around the same time. I think the Young Guns films were around. They they look as good as those easily, right? So you got fantastic production value, right? Um, the the um, director, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really know him. It turns out he produced the Quiet Quiet Earth, the yes, right. oh, wow. yeah, which yep. obviously masterpiece of a film. Yeah. So you got real talent behind it, and people really giving it. Some of their best performances, I think. I mean, I, don't, I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't really watch Helen Hunt films right <laughs> I, mean, seen, I have i have seen them but you know she, she doesn't necessarily make the kind of films that i would uh, n- naturally gravitate gravitate towards she's fantastic in this you know, dylan mcturman's as good as he's, as anybody else has been and another name we haven't mentioned is An- andrew robinson who plays a uh, score oh yeah harry and he's in hellraiser and uh he's in uh Cobra as well, the Stallone movie. Oh the, uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's best, right. Best the Zombie ever. Squad. Maybe, I don't know. You know, he's always. Yeah, it might be. And he's great in this as well. Fantastic. Yeah, it's just it's such an well. So I think the USA Network movies had had bigger budgets. So by like the nineties, a lot of the TV movies. Um, uh, they looked like TV movies very much so and, and, and that's not to diminish them but like I remember when we covered Death of a Cheerleader yes. Dan kind of brought up the filmic quality of it because it was so different from the 70s which also felt more cinematic in a lot of ways and so but by the 90s I think the budgets weren't as quite like they were because the ratings weren't quite what they were but the USA Network I guess this is a good place to just briefly mm-hmm. mention it so the USA Network is a is a basic cable channel here in the states they still exist and when they got started like TNT and like Lifetime 
they all at the same time decided that they were going to start producing original content. And a lot of them went into the TV movie market. And uh, it all started in the late 80s. I think USA might have been the first to do it, possibly TNT. And the budgets for not necessarily for the Lifetime movies tended to be uh, it's hard to, to predict. Some of them have much better quality budgets, like Deadly Dreams with Christopher Reeve is a beautifully shot, amazing, harrowing, moving film. But like, um, but like their first movie, Memories of Midnight, looks like a direct-to-video, like erotic thriller, and there's not a lot of uh, filmic quality to it. It's very rough, and it's it's not their best film. But like TNT was like throwing all kinds of money around. They were really going to make these like look like cinema, but for your small screen. And USA was somewhere in between. And so Into the Badlands and Another World are sort of anomalies in how filmic that they look, but they also looked much better. Even the lower budgeted USA originals looked much better than a lot of the 90s network films. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so like one of the first USA network movies is called, I think, oh my God, is it Murder by Midnight with Robert Urich? It's the first one I ever saw. And um, it looks it looks kind of cheap, but but much better than whatever was on NBC. And so um, so the networks were putting, the, the cable channels, I'm sorry, the cable channels were putting more money into these films. And this one, I don't know how much it cost. I couldn't find much about the production of it at all. But they did, they were throwing some money around. I'm almost positive. Either that or they had a really ingenious uh, cinematographer. You know what I mean? Or And it's possible that that's what it was. But, uh, but uh, some of these movies were getting pretty decent budgets. Um and they were putting a lot, especially in these early days of the original USA movies, they were putting a lot behind them because, so I don't remember when it came out, um, but when we covered the China Lake murders, that movie in the ratings blew everybody away. Like nobody could, ex nobody could have believed how many um, people watched it. And so the cable channel started thinking, Ooh, we've got a real audience here. So I think that's when they started upping the stakes on, on the films. And, and also we got a variety of content. Like this is an anomaly, but a lot of the USA network originals, some of them were very by the book and some of them were pretty wild and unique and imaginative, you know? So, so anyway, I'm just, what I'm saying is, is that the basic cable channel movies are slightly different than what we saw on the network. Mm. Um, they wanted more, more cinematic quality to them at this point. And they, they do something I, I really like, which is like the Bruce Dern scenes, like the opening scene with him catcher capturing the guy with the two little girls or, or the sequence with him, like, out getting Red Roundtree. Like, those scenes are, like, huge cinematic scenes. But then what they do through quite a large portion of the film is it's just, like, two good actors in a room. So mm. so they do that thing where they're able to cut between, like, these kind of fantastic scenes out in the Badlands and these huge, you know, west old western streets and things like that. And then just a scene of, of two people, like, in a bed. And the camera's just looking down at them. So you're able to mm -hmm. use your budget and have Bruce Dern wander through yeah. his cart, whistling his tune, doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and intercut that with these scenes, which I'm sure they cost a lot of money too, but wouldn't have been the same amount of money. And and you're able to do that by um uh, just sort of you know you you kind of show off the big the the bigness the huge the hugeosity of it all, <laughs> and, that, and then you cut to these more. Um, uh, intimate scenes, but because you kind of grabbed the audience already, no one's sitting there going, hey, 
this is just a scene of two women sitting in bed talking where all the big outside <laughs> stuff goes. So there, there's kind of, it's kind of, and a lot of films do that, but it, it's nice. I, I like that. I mean, like we spend so much time with, with, with Helen Hunt and, and Mr. Mr. Good looking guy there. And, and it's just like two of them, like in a bed, a lot of, or him in the tub, you know, unless that tub was made of gold. You know that that wasn't those were so, so they were they were able to so they were able to par, parse out the production values in such a way that in the back of your mind you you always think like you're watching something really really epic and huge scaled but a lot of times yeah. it's just people talking yeah they did a really good job of that of making it feel really big when you're right these are very small stories aren't they these are like love stories yes. and friendship stories and it's you know what I mean and so like um. And emotional stories, and not so much the third one, but the first two. So yeah, you're right. They did a really good job of making things feel bigger than with the with kind of the granular, like um, what do I want to say? The concepts yes. were mm-hmm. of the characters, right? Well, I'm really enjoying this conversation, so I don't want to short shift, especially since James loved it so much. So I want him to be able to say everything he wants to say about it. So so do you have any other thoughts you you have on it? No, really. I'm just looking at my, the the notes I made, and they're pretty much. Uh... I mean, apart from just incidental things that I noticed, there wasn't that much to say about this one. It doesn't really have those. I didn't think it had those what, what we call kind of like gaps, you know, problems that you could, you could like find ways of fixing. I think it's a very assured movie. I think it's a film that's really in control of itself, uh, and and um, that doesn't mean it's to everyone's taste, and it doesn't make and it couldn't have been better. And I, and I think it definitely does. You know, confound expectations, and I thought it was just really, um, really solid, and mm-hmm. grabbed me, and had not had my attention, and the film was in control of me, right? Wow. Now with Black Noon, I felt that I was in control of the story because I'd seen other stories like it done better, and that's not putting Black Noon down because I did enjoy it very much, and I do recommend it. With this film, with Into the Badlands. This film was in control of me because I didn't really know what it was going to do. And sometimes when you're taken surprise like that, when the film's in control of you, when you think this is, you know, I, I, I'm not expecting, I, I wasn't expecting this. I'm not sure where it's going. I, I, I don't know what it's, what it's doing, but it's dragging me along. I, I just really love those experiences. And so um, there, wasn't, there, there weren't a lot of notes to make. There wasn't a lot of things to comment on. I would love to watch it again. Uh, I don't know whether my opinion of it would change, whether I'd feel differently about it. I'm definitely going to watch it again based on the things that both of you have said. But I don't care even if I watch it again and I this, I end up hating it. I, I loved it the first time I watched it, and that was a really <laughs> that that was a great enough experience for me. So I, I I'm I'm going to recommend it to people. Yay! Okay, so one of the things you said was. Um, the film is in control of me. That would be like the best tagline ever. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? For like, cause I'd be like, Oh, Hey, what's going on here? So I, and I would want to see it. And I did not watch this when it originally aired, but I was watching a lot of USA originals um, at the time. This was such a great time for, for basic cable TV movies. And, and we'll cover more of them on the show, but I think this is a good example of how imaginative they could get. And so that's, what's exciting about it. And also because I think it is, based in um, some kind of subtext that actually has some poignancy for people if they want to look into it. But at the same time, it's just kind of a wild ride too, right? Because it's so different. And um, and I love that aspect of it. So yeah, I would definitely recommend it as well. And Dan? Oh yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. The, the, the thing, one of the reasons why I watched it three times apart from my misunderstanding the first time was that <laughs> I, I, I like to feel like what I when I'm going to talk about a movie on here or anywhere, I'd like to feel like I 
maybe I don't 100% understand the movie, but I fully get what the movie is up to. And this kind of uh, a film I thought of that I don't like nearly as much as this one, but like, look what happened to Rosemary's Baby. I watched that one mm-hmm. like three times before we talked about it. I still don't think I understand exactly what's going on in that movie. I think that movie was a little confused, however. I don't think this one is. I think this movie knows exactly what it's doing. It's just doing something that I haven't fully grasped yet and need to watch a couple more times, which makes any critique I give of it a little lacking because I'm not fully um, conversant in what, in what it's up to. But I, I I would recommend it. I would recommend it. If you're, if you're a Western fan, if you're – it's kind of horror-ish uh, fan if you're an anthology fan I, I, or if you're just a fan of a weird movie, watch it. You know, that's that's enough for me. Dan, it's weird. I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's definitely like takes you into another universe very well, and that I love that when movies can like kind of strip away your reality uh, and hold your attention with their created worlds. And so this film does a really good job of that. As again, we talk about the cinematography because they really set you in a time and place very well and very solidly. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so like, um, and even the characters look very of its time. Where I said Yvette Mimo looked more accurate to the Western world. I mean, I still her hair is still very like this movie feels like it's rooted. Yeah. in something more realistic even though it's not a very realistic tale you know or tales um and that's i love that aspect of it so yeah it's something to check out it's a weird one it's probably not been seen by a lot of people so if you're listening to this and you're intrigued it's on dvd so and it's only selling for like six bucks mm. on amazon so and it's one of the few usa originals that's made the leap from vhs to oh. um dvd so a lot of the usa originals actually are different than tv movies in that they've had uh, home video releases, but they haven't really made the leap from video. So uh, when I buy a USA original, I have to find it on VHS. But they do have several of them are available if people want to check out their stuff. They have a really wild selection of movies. Um, they did a really good one um, that I'll recommend here just briefly called Rub Down about uh, it's sort of like a neo-noir and it's really good. I was not I wasn't sure what I was expecting. It's got William Devane in mm. it, Catherine Oxenberg. Um, oh, my God. Uh, Michelle Phillips is in it. Wow. It's really good. I it's a wild one. It's it's got Kane Hodder and Alan Thicke in it. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But uh, but it's a really neat little neo noir. So anyway, let me go ahead and get, go into the background real quick, and then we can we can do our one piece of feedback. So um, so this aired in the USA original. Uh, now Merrill's book says July twenty fourth, nineteen ninety one, but it was actually July twenty eighth. Um, which I found in newspapers, uh, and it ran against um, uh, sixty minutes, which is historically a Sunday night show. So that's how I know it. It was the 28th. So anyway, because it ran against on CBS, 60 Minutes and Murder, She Wrote. And interestingly enough, the USA Network had aired an episode of Murder, She Wrote before Into the Badlands. So people were probably watching Murder, She Wrote on USA and then turning over to Murder, She Wrote on CBS, probably, because that was a huge show. On ABC, uh, they showed Life Goes On and America's Funniest Home Videos. NBC was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. And then on Fox was Hidden Videos, which is like America's Funniest Home Videos. Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which I guarantee you I was watching. And In Living Color and Get a Life. So I'm positive I was watching Fox that night. As I mentioned, the cinematography was nominated for an Emmy. It's by a man named Johnny E. Jensen. And I meant to look up his filmography, and I didn't. So people should look him up. He's really good at what he does. I have a quote from him down here actually talking about working on this film. Um, So the three tales have been adapted from other stories. The first one is from a story called The Streets of Laredo by Will Henry. The second one is called The Time of the Wolves by Marsha Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R, and I'm going to find that story and read it. The third one is The Last Pair by Bryce Walton. So the whole uh, interstitial stuff with Bruce Dern, I think, is loosely based off The Last Pair, or at least the end story is, um, which is interesting. 
Um, this was filmed throughout New Mexico, mostly at ranches. The Bonanza Creek Ranch was the location of John Carpenter's Vampires, Young Guns, which James mentioned, and Lust in the Dust, among many others, including episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, the Cook Ranch served as location for Silverado, Lonesome Dove, the miniseries, Young Guns 2. Also, Walker, Texas Ranger was shot there. And I'm probably going to butcher this name, but I think the Nambe Pueblo was a location used for city slickers. So they, they used a lot of interesting ranches and places that were already built for um, those, a lot of those exteriors. Um, the USA programmed several original TV movies into their July schedule. It's not usual to see original new films during summer months. That's the time for reruns. But in July, they showed Into the Badlands, The Perfect Bride with Kelly Preston, Deadly Game with Roddy McDowell, which I do have on VHS, and Drop Dead Gorgeous with Isabella Rossellini, not the later Kirstie Alley film. That's something else. Into the Badlands appeared during a sort of renaissance of the Western on TV. Other TV movies to come out during the same era include Sarah Plain and Tall, which was huge. That's a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie, and Conagher. So here's some of the reviews. Kirk Nice Wonger, who has the best name I've ever heard, uh, of the <laughs> oh Daily boy. Herald in Provo. Yeah, Nice Wonger um, from Provo, Utah, said, quote, Into the Badlands is unrelentingly, unrelentingly strange and weirdly original, but it's also one of those movies that's easier to admire than enjoy. Ray Loind of the LA Times wrote, It looks like a Western directed by Ingmar Bergman. Thank you, Dan. That's not, and then he, but then he goes on to say that's not a compliment. Hey. He called the, yeah, he called the Badlands self-conscious and hokey, um, but Variety loved it. They wrote, um, Pillsbury develops plenty of edgy moments, making spooky aspects of the drama seem natural. And they said it was a hypnotizer. They were really taken with it. And they were the only person who I could find like a super positive review from. So American cinematographer interviewed uh, the, the cinematographer of this. And he said, it's sort of what would happen if Rod Serling did a Western. And that's interesting because I'll talk about the ad campaign in a second. He said, it has a Twilight Zone feel. So the approach was a little bit oddball. So he said that the way he put the movie together was that he tried to keep the visuals consistent, um, although each film had its own twist. Um, you can look up this interview, but he talks about how he set up the story so that everything kind of felt similar, even though everything was actually different. And he said that while he was making it, he was actually thinking about Sergio Leone's uh, once, did I say that right? Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, mm -hmm. um, which he felt was kind of a surreal film as well. And he really liked working with Sam Pillsbury, the director. He said he's a featured director who has not done much in this country, but he has a lot of visual style and I think he has a bright future. So Sam Pillsbury was born in New York, as I said, but he moved to New Zealand and then he would go on to become a, a pretty a successful filmmaker there doing The Quiet Earth, as James mentioned. Um, and then he found some TV work in the States. And I think he was kind of facilitating between both of them. But he ended up in Arizona, which is where I believe he lives now, because he got a phone call from an executive who had worked with him on Badlands. And he said, do you want to direct Knight Rider 2010, which is a semi-sequel to the Knight Rider series with David Hasselhoff? And he wasn't getting a lot of work. He says he's embarrassed by the film, but I bet it's probably pretty good. <laughs> and while he was making Knight Rider 2010, he met a woman that would end up becoming his um, partner in life, and they're still oh. together. And they have a daughter. And so while he was in Arizona, he uh, got really interested in winemaking. So now he's actually a winemaker. And he's talked about in this interview from 2013 that when he was in New Zealand, he used to share an office with Sam Neill. And if you know anything about Sam Neill, you know he owns a winery. And so they talked a lot about wine even then. So he's always had an interest in that. So he said something that I thought was really poignant. He talked about the differences and similarities between wine and filmmaking. So he wrote, or he said, I should say, he said, quote, I really thought the two occupations would be stunningly different. Movies are abstract and ephemeral. Growing grapes and making wine would be organic, 
earthy substantial. I would have land. I would have vines growing out of the soil. These are things you could touch. It could be so permanent, so grounding. They're almost exactly the same. Risky, costly, taking forever. The critics love your crappy stuff and trash your darlings. The weather messes up your schedule and the vines will die. The wine will go off. Film actually lasts longer. I started making films in New Zealand when there was almost no film industry. People thought we were crazy. Then we got on this wave and started surfing. Hey, Peter Jackson, exhilarating. The same thing happened with wine. It was so much fun. I started making films because I love films. And I started making wine because I love wine. It's that simple. And with film, you have studios and networks that mess with your work. I own this company. I do whatever I want. So he would go on to have a really kind of interesting career. He did um, Free Willy 3 as one of his movies that came later and some a lot of direct-to-video stuff and, and I think he primarily worked in TV after Badlands. I talked about a little bit about the ad campaign. I did come across one ad promoting the film and they called it The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly Enter the Twilight Zone into the Badlands. Bruce Stern is Barston, a desperate bounty hunter who spends 13 months hunting down a despicable lowlife by the name of Red Roundtree, a cryptic journey that takes him to a place where fugitive ghosts ride. Oh, ride horseback. A gambler attends his own funeral. Let's see, they're giving it away here, aren't they? <laughs> a homesteaders face a pack of bloodthirsty wolves, a journey with no happy endings, only dead ends. So that was kind of how they promoted it. But the Twilight Zone thing is really interesting to me because I don't to me, I guess this is like political commentary, but not in the way I see Rod Serling stuff. So it's only tan, it, it, tenuous to me that the two are connected. But whatever. They did the ad. I can't make them fix it. <laughs> so Lisa Lisa Pelican was promoting her appearance in Return to the Blue Lagoon when oh uh, Into the Badlands aired. So she got mentioned in a few news articles. And now it's time for feedback. Hey, Amanda. Hey, everybody. I'm Stan Peel, and I'm a dork because... I wanted to comment first on your last podcast where you covered Midnight Offerings as one of the two movies. I saw it in time to send feedback, but I didn't because I knew Amanda liked it and I just didn't care for it. And at first, I couldn't defend why. It took me a while to figure it out because there's so many good things about it, especially Melissa Sue Anderson, who was incredible, so delightfully evil. I could watch her be an evil witch all day. I guess what I didn't care for was the lost potential. I guess I wanted to see it go in different directions. Maybe because I'm older, uh, but I found Marion Ross and Catherine Damon a lot more interesting than Mary Beth McDonough and Patrick Cassidy. What a boring couple of kids. The guy was a teenage boy with a van who never used his van for making out. It was just for hauling surfing equipment. What's wrong with him? Is that a California thing? Meanwhile, Catherine Damon and Marion Ross are fascinating as, as two witches. At least I got the impression that Marion Ross was a witch. I'm, I, I wasn't sure from your discussion if you saw it that way, but I think that's why they made a point of showing her youngest daughter baking cookies to, to show that dynamic of mentoring her youngest daughter, but in a benign way. Anyway, I wanted to see those two witches battle it out. Like, maybe they're both trying to avoid the big showdown with their young Padawans, so they get into a battle themselves. But Mrs. Cunningham just drops a little advice and disappears. I, I did like that Catherine Damon was involved in the final battle, but her sacrifice meant no chance at a sequel where she battles Mrs. C. So I was sad. 
The only ones left standing are the boring teenagers and Gordon Jump, who obviously consoles himself with buying a kick-ass radio station. This time, however, I checked out Black Noon, and I loved it. Amanda, you have schooled me otherwise, but I still carry some of these old prejudices about TV movies, that they're going to pale next to cinematic movies because they can't show anything. But Black Noon was, it was so full of creepy images, and it was super sexy without being obvious about anything. This seduction of the preacher, turning him away from his wife, what a great slow burn. I wish I had better resolution on the copy that I watched because Yvette Mimo, Mimio, 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 Deliverance did so much subtle, beautiful work with just her face. I, I really wish I could have seen every nuance of that, both from her and from Ray Milan. I was sure he was going to turn out evil, but he never gave that away, at least not that I could see. If I watched in high def, maybe, maybe he would have hinted at it, uh, or uh, giving it away with a tiny look or something, but but probably not. I, he's too good. And and the ending was such a surprise, at least for me. I knew where Yvette Meow Meow was headed, but I did not expect the whole town to be in on it. Wow! It had a real Wicker Man vibe to it, the original with Edward Woodward. Uh, maybe some notes of 2000 Maniacs. Who's in on it? Everybody! Thanks for a great recommendation, as usual. So glad your podcasts are coming out on the regular again. I'm looking forward to a Christmas episode with Joanna. I hope that's happening. And speaking of the holidays, probably too late at broadcast time, but happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you, Stan, Thank for you, leaving Stan. Hey. that feedback. Hey, we love you, Stan. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm not mad that he didn't like Midnight Offerings. Like I said, it's fine, and he gives plenty of reasons. I, I love what he says about the older characters mm -hmm. because uh, the older I get, the more I am interested in Catherine Damon's character as the mother. But I don't necessarily think I agree with him that Marion Ross, Mrs. C's character, is a witch. And I, I think that's because she's kind of also like... She doesn't fully understand the powers mm -hmm. of Melissa Sue Anderson's character. So I think she's more like the the medium, yeah. you know, between the two. So, but but I love the idea of what he talks about, about the mentoring with the girl with the little cookies and everything. Mm -hmm. um, Dan, did you have any thoughts about his Midnight Offering commentary? Uh, no, I think you, you actually you summed up uh, pretty much what I thought. I mean, to me, I, I, I never really quite thought of what um, Marion Ross, what exactly her character was supposed to be i just thought she was sort of like hey this lady can help and then you go to her, you're almost like a fixer or something you know like uh, yeah i fix it up what do you do i'll take care of it you know it's like we need to find out more about this go to marion ross you know tom bosley recommends her go there she'll sort out what's <laughs> happening you know i i i never really i never really thought too deeply into that i just i i don't know why it was just me like oh it's marion ross and, and stuff i don't know but but no i yeah that's about it there. I love that he loved Black Noon. I'm so happy he saw it. He said some really interesting things. He was hitting on the thing. We were talking about where he has these preconceived notions of what TV movies can do. And, sure. and some of these movies have defied that. And this is one of them. And he talks about how it's not an obvious film, but it still manages to be sexy and creepy. And um, he should see Fear No Evil, which just came out on Blu-ray. Oh, I yes. think you'll get the same Oh, that Blu-ray looks fantastic. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, my yeah. But, you know, that is a sexy and creepy. That movie goes, but it's got uh, bloodletting. It's got, like, like fucking mirrors like it's yeah. got all kinds of weird it, shit yeah, and, and, you, and like it's like yeah. she's like humping a mirror in it basically yes. i mean it's amazing with fear no evil the the first time i watched it i thought where exactly is this gonna go and then it goes to some wonderful places i recommend it highly it does 
Yeah, it's really good. So, um, and the score is amazing. It was Billy Goldenberg's mm. first TV movie. Um, anyway, he brought up a lot of things about the film that I think were really interesting, like the the nuanced acting. Because you're right, you you don't really get a vibe off Ray Milland, and he wants to give it a second go with a better transfer because I think it will help him watch the actors more. You know, to see if those little clues are dropped. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really hard to see. The YouTube upload is horrendous. Um, and it's disappointing because I would like more people to have access to it. But anyway, um, and also I took note. Well, first, first of all, Yvette Meow Meow is like the greatest thing I've ever heard. And I, it made me laugh out loud when he said that. But like, um, but I agree with him about the Wicker Man vibe and the 2000 Maniacs. Both films we referenced while talking about the film. And it's kind of interesting that we all thought of these different films, but the same films at the same time, like as a group. Um, that these that this movie isn't necessarily, necessarily directly referring referencing 2000 maniacs but there's a vibe there that's similar and it's fascinating to me you know how it's so much like these other films but also its own beast um what did you guys think uh, about stan's feedback do you have anything to add i think the uh comment about the uh, seeing it in a, in a better print so you could see the nuances in the performances are really uh, astute comments that, that's that's really 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 fascinating one thing that's wonderful about checking out blu-rays not just of tv movies of any kind of movies when you it gives you a newfound appreciation if you watch it on a large enough television of, of of the of the uh you you can see the way people's eyes move what they're doing with their lips when they're waiting to speak that kind of stuff i love watching actors performances uh, particularly when they're not speaking when they're when when it's like when they're uh they're in a shot uh, and they're reacting to someone else speaking, yes. seeing what, what they, seeing what the actor's doing. It's, it's, it's always great to watch as a filmmaker. It's great to watch as a, as a fan. It's great to watch as a as like an ac- academic. It's great to watch. So I thought that was a fantastic comment from from Stan. Actually, I thought that's really really interesting. And Ray Milland is a, is a, is such a good actor. So it would be good to see it on a on a, on a really pristine uh, print. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And hopefully somebody here that can do that, make that happen is listening because yes, I think it would have a pretty pretty big audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dan, is there anything you want to say? I was going to say with if, if the pronunciation of Yvette's name, I thought he had copyrighted that, so that's why I didn't um, use that throughout. <laughs> I kept with my view throughout. Yeah, so thank you, Stan. Um, we really appreciate you sending it. It's always very thoughtful feedback yes, that he yeah. sends. And um, and I'll give you our contact information here at the end. But this is the part where we wrap things up and we kind of promote things that we've been doing. And so I want to put the spotlight on James because he does a yes. lot of really cool things. And if and <laughs> whatever he's got in the mix, I would like him to share. And then we will just briefly go over our stuff because we're not as important. So, James, go. No, I am, I, you, you, you're, you're just as important. You're more important than me. More important than me. So, like, no, if, oh, if anyone out there wants to listen to, to Newton talks, please go to it. Go to the go go to the link. Um, I, I, you know, hopefully the stuff there that you'll find of interest. I'm I, I'm I'm relatively new to podcasting. 2021. I'm hoping I've I've already got a roster of of of, of episodes where I want to get two episodes out a month. So it's going to be uh, there's going to be a lot more content hopefully over the next 12 months. So I hope hope people enjoy it. And you know if there's a link to my website in the in the description, then please go uh, and you know l- look at my films and I hope you enjoy them. Um, and uh, yeah, look look out for uh, the Mad Max effect coming coming oh, to books bookstores next year. Hopefully, maybe who knows. <laughs> And and your movie at festivals. What's the title again? Yeah, Black Lizard Tales is my my latest film, and the trailer is on is on my YouTube page and my Vimeo page as well. So, um, if if you go to the website, people can find that. Um, it's only a kind of one minute trailer. I knocked up quite quickly, so I, I try and keep a, a track of the festivals that it's that it's played. And and 
within a month or so i'll be looking at trying to get some form of distribution to it as well so if, if that's the case i'll give you the details so you can maybe update the, the description oh, yeah. for this but that's if you know if i if, if i manage to secure some kind of um distribution for it and if not then uh within you know probably 12 months i'll put it out to, for free anyway regardless so um you know if i can't find a, a distributor for it because i do want people to see the film uh at, at the very least so um but yeah in the first first point of call, go to Newton Talks if you're interested in podcasts about films. Okay. Do you also want to give us your Twitter handle and so people want to follow well, you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> At James Ed Newton. Uh, James Ed Ed Newton. So uh, if people search me that, but if it, again, the links to that will be on my website and uh, and stuff like that. So, oh, great. so people will be people will be able to okay. find and they'll be able to find me through if they know you as well and Daniel as well. So uh, yeah, yeah, it'd be great to, to, cool. to if anybody's interested, and and I hope, and and yeah, before before I go, I just hope uh, people have in, in, enjoyed my contributions. I hope you've enjoyed my contributions. I very much enjoyed being on this uh, on this yeah. show. And once it was great. It, hopefully, I've uh, met your expectations. Oh, beyond Definitely. our expectations, we've talked about so much, and it's all been like amazing. I, I was I was actually given my two weeks notice. <laughs> uh, I've been fired uh, in between the two two movies. I think you may have a job. Coming up here. <laughs> no, thank you so much for for coming on. We we really appreciate yeah, it. It's just been a treat for us, and I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it too. And we'll have you back, hopefully, to talk about some other interesting, um, crazy TV movies. But um, Dan, tell me what you've. Yes, yay, Dan. Tell me what you've been up to. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go really quickly. I just want to say two things. Um, um, first, if you want to watch a great folk horror film from the early '70s, there's a film called The Legend of Hillbilly John or The Ballad of Hillbilly John. The Ballad of Hillbilly John with Susan Strasberg by John Newland. I'm uh, sorry. John yeah. Newland, yeah. Who fears the devil? It's based on Manly Wade Wellman, I believe. His his stories about like some guy who wanders like with a guitar and f- defeats demons and things. And it's a fun movie that they've been threatening to put out on a DVD or Blu-ray for like six years. Like Kino Lorber and some other companies every year or two. The Legend of Hillbilly or the Ballad of Hillbilly John. It'll be out soon, and it never comes out. But I recommend it. And then, um, where where am I uh, online? Oh, uh, oh, uh, eventually, Super Train, my podcast episode ninety nine should be out wow. when you guys are listening to this, which is fun. And um, there's two more things. One, once you've read the Mad Max effect and enjoyed it, and enjoyed the joie de vivre <laughs> and the intelligence and the you know the majesty of it, feel free to pick up my book, Eighties Action Movies on the Cheap which reviews a lot of Mad Max ripoffs and it's probably not as scholarly or, or as, or maybe a little silly. entertaining. Uh, and, <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, and the last thing I was going to say is um, Hank Warden. The the place I first saw him in was in Byron Quisenberry's oh, Scream. Yeah. He is the, in, in Scream, because Scream is Woody Strode and Alvy Moore and is Hank Warden. Hank Warden, in that movie, it's a bunch of people going on a White River rafting ride thing through uh, Texas. They end up in a ghost town. And there is a really angry guy throughout the movie, his sister and their dad. The dad is Hank Warden. He's the one who was killed after the second guy who looks like a National Book Award winner, John Barth, gets killed going and getting a beer. And, like, the door slams in your face. They all go into this cabin. They find him dead. Hank Warden is the old guy who wanders out of the cabin, goes back in the cabin. And then you see, like, the butcher's knife, like, hit him over and over again. Not that graphically. And the music goes all, like, kind of weird. And you see his hand clawing at the ground. That's Hank Warden. 
And if you, it's, that's the only film you've seen him in, you might think, who is this old guy and is he okay? <laughs> but you wouldn't know that that's the way he acts all the time. So I just wanted to, it's because I mentioned that earlier. I wanted to mention that again. But that's what's happening here. Podcast, my Happy Days podcast is cooking along. It's all good times. Yay. Okay, I'll just go briefly. So so I spent most of the year looking for work and, and not coming. And now all of a sudden I'm kind of drowning in it. So a couple of neat things have happened. I just want to, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but I did the liner notes for The Last Starfighter, which came out through Arrow um, last month. And I'm really excited about that. I also did the liner notes for a Blu-ray release of I Start Counting, which is a British thriller directed by David Green, which has never had a home video release in this country. Um, and so it's a really big deal. And it's getting a lot of uh, nice reviews, the packaging and everything that's from Fun City Editions that's been released through um, Vinegar Syndrome. Um, I'm also in a documentary called Tales of the Uncanny, which is about a um, the history of anthology films. And what? I, yeah, I'm in it for like two minutes. I, I think. didn't know that. Yeah, and oh, and so I I didn't even know I was in it till like a week before it premiered. I and I probably look like hell because I did my own makeup and whatever. But um, but I've heard <laughs> it's it's really good, and so everybody should see it. It's it just played in England. It had a premiere there, and it premiered here, and I think it's premiering in Canada this week. Um, I have four essays in tonight on a very special episode when TV sitcoms sometimes got oh, serious. Gosh. I wrote about Leave It to Beaver, Chico and the Man, Laverne and Shirley, and Too Close for Comfort. And I also sold my first ever article to Fangoria and that's going to be yay. yay and that's going to be available in January of 2021 um with oh, Mary Lou from Prom Night 2 and 3 on the cover um and then I'm going to go ahead and make an announcement here that hasn't been announced yet because I think this episode's coming out after the announcement is made but I did a commentary for a movie I'm super proud to be a part of and that is Vinegar Syndrome's release of Fade to Black um which is <gasps> yeah a 1980 what? A 1980 horror movie with Dennis Christopher oh that I did the commentary with Bill Ackerman from Supporting Characters. We we did Last oh. House and Left together. We wrote the Al Adamson book together. He's a great partner. And we are so excited and even more excited because the Hysteria Continues also did a separate commentary track. So it's going to be like, a, it's going to have so many extras and they've announced that on Black Friday. So I, I, I'm i going to leave this oh. here in case... Um, that's cool. Yeah, this comes out after Friday, which I think it will. So that's a big deal for me, and I'm super happy about it. I've been dying to tell people for months. Um, and <laughs> and I've also just recorded some more things and written some more things. So there'll be more stuff coming um, in the next couple months when I get the okay to say them. I'm going to say them. I'm really excited about all of it. So anyway, uh, that's it for me. And so I'll tell you, our next episode is our Christmas, our annual Christmas special with Joanna Wilson Yay. from Tis the Season right. TV. Yay! And we're going to play the TV game and we're going to watch something. And I think I know what we're oh going to watch. So I'm really excited. And um, and if you want to contact us, you can find us at TV Mayhem Podcast on Twitter. You can find us at Made for TV Mayhem on Instagram. You can find us at the Made for TV Mayhem Show on Facebook. And you can email us at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. So again, James, thank you so much for this freaking marathon. Thank you, James. Yeah, thank that you. we did yeah. about two really thank interesting you. movies that I think we really like got into the nitty gritty of it. And that's always excites me to talk about films this way. And so thank you for coming along for the ride and for adding so much to this conversation. We really appreciate it. Yes. I've loved it. And then next month it'll just be Dan and Nate and whatever. Uh, (laughs) And the TV game, which is always. Yeah. Well, Joanna will be here to make you guys seem okay, but otherwise (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But anyway, so we'll be back next month. So, so please tune in next month and keep um, in tune with our social media channels and we'll let you know what we're watching. Um, And until then, thank you everybody. And goodbye. Goodbye. See ya.